We are a citizen organized, a citizen run, a citizen funded initiative. We don't have a single large donor. We're doing this all on our own, almost exclusively by volunteers. We want to start a national dialogue. COVID-19 pandemic has been a unprecedented event as far as Canada, the countries in the world are concerned. The fact that in Canada, people are still afraid. It has not been disclosed uh, to the general public the contents of the uh, material. So in that moment, she framed every unvaccinated person, including her guest on the show, as a danger to public safety. What's interesting also is that nobody can name a single real-world vaccine success story where COVID rates went down at a nursing home or a funeral home after the vax rollout. You're in a cancer clinic and you feel abused by everybody because they didn't want to know you. They wanted to know your mask. They wanted to make personal contact with your mask and that was the horror of it. How did we get to this point? A nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. That's still where we are in this nation, Canada, because no government, no authority wants to inquire into its handling or mishandling of the last three years' response to COVID-19. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone who is joining us online. Uh, my name is Sean Buckley, and I've been acting as lead counsel at the National Citizens Inquiry. And I'm very honored to have this panel of lawyers joining us today. We've got Bruce Party, who is a law professor and gave a, a spectacular presentation about administrative, the administrative state at the National Citizens Inquiry. We have Leighton Gray, who has just been a champion out there on, on COVID cases and issues and an out, uh, outspoken person for rights who also testified. I think you testified twice, Leighton. Yes. James Kitchen, I, I, the same description, just been a warrior out there, a champion for people that have um, <clears throat> really been abused by what's gone on with the COVID thing and also just an outspoken spoken champion for our rights as is bruce party and um, i have to say i'm honored to be on a panel with you guys and i've really been encouraged by what's been going on and i'm looking forward to the, this discussion which the topic is is why the law failed to protect us during covid and for those of you that did not watch the National Citizens Inquiry. Um, you're in for a treat today to hear what this panel has to say. Um, but I will just kind of set the stage by saying, and I, uh, any of you uh, can correct me, but I'm still not aware of a single court case in Canada that basically puts a break on any level of government going forward by, by being able to impose similar restrictions if we're in a similar situation before. So we've just experienced what is in my opinion the largest intrusion of government <clears throat> overreach into our personal lives even in wartime mm. and yet i can't think of a single case 
that I could use or another lawyer could use to basically put a break on any level of government if we were to experience the same thing again. And my concern is, is well, if there's no break going forward and we're in a similar situation that the governments will actually actually go further the next time to see, well, where is that line? How far can we go? And um, so, yeah, so I'll just uh, <clears throat> open it up and maybe I'll just ask, are you guys familiar with a single case <laughs> that would act as a break on any level of government going forward? No. There's one that's pending that we have a lot of hopes on in uh, in Alberta that James and I both worked on, and that's the Ingram case. But uh, uh, you know the the court there seems to have ignored the time honored maxim that justice delayed is justice denied because that case has been sitting with the Court of King's Bench for about a year now. Yeah. And right the, now, the law, but, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Bruce, my my thought, if I recall your testimony on that. It's it's actually a bit of a narrow issue, isn't it? It's not necessarily going to put a break on government going forward. The issue was that they were basically using the, the wrong legislation. They had done it right. the wrong way. Right. It it it, it becomes a uh, the if if we are successful, it will be upon the basis that the chief medical officer of health for Alberta exceeded her statutory her statutory authority in making the health orders that she did in the way that she did because she sought the advice and counsel of Mr. Kenny and his cabinet. Essentially, that's the, so that, that might not be, as you say, much of a, you know, much of a bulwark against, against emergency powers, which were vastly expanded during the pandemic. And you're quite right, Sean, all of those powers federally and provincially, at least in Alberta, are still there. I, I don't know of any province that has gone back and repealed their emergency powers. Uh, but, but uh, well, you know, why would they? You know, Bruce, I had cut you off. You were going to jump in and, and make a comment. I was just going to say that as time goes on and more of these rules are repealed, the likelihood of, of success diminishes because more and more cases become moot. And we've seen that happen. Yeah. So, so the record as of now is not one that we can go to go next time and say, well, look what happened last time. Look at the decisions of the courts last time. You can't do this again. In fact, it's, it's quite to the contrary. I mean, so far, um, I think governments will interpret what has happened so far as as a green light to to go ahead, do it again. Yeah. And, yeah. and can I just explain for the, the people watching? So when when Bruce is talking about cases being moot is one of the things that has happened in a lot of COVID lit litigation. So let's use Brian Peckford's case as an example, because he's a fairly well-known personality is so Mr. Peckford and others had, had sued in federal court or started an action basically seeking relief, saying, listen, you're not allowing me to travel on a plane or a train because I'm not vaccinated and this is violating my charter rights. So they do a lot of work in the lawsuit. They file their affidavits. The, other, the government files their affidavits. They cross-examine the affiants of those affidavits and they prepare the they prepared their arguments and they have a trial date, a date to go and argue this. But before the trial date, the government drops the travel mandate. And then the Crown applies to the court saying, well, this is moot because all of these, these plaintiffs can now travel 
So let's not waste court time. This isn't in the public interest for us to basically use court time when you can't grant these people relief. And the rest of us will go, what are you talking about? This is, is an example of extreme government overreach. And there's extreme public interest in, in basically finding out, is this okay or was this not okay? Did this violate our charter rights? Did, they, did it not? And if it did, was this you know, justified under section one, that there was a, an extreme public interest in determining this, but case after case after case, including Mr. Peckford's, the court said, no, this is moot and they dropped it. So just so that the people watching understand what, what Mr. Party was referring to is just basically um, a whole bunch of cases didn't get to the finish line to where they even got to argue or make a decision. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the tactics used to basically avoid making those hard decisions. Yeah. There is, uh, if I could jump in, I, th I think there is a root cause and I'd be interested to know what uh, you gentlemen think about this because uh, I have to be careful here because I'm in the presence of a law professor, but I've been doing some some writing on constitutional law for uh, my, my my podcast, Shameless Plug, because I do I do some commentaries and I, I was looking into um, the behavior of the courts and trying to put that in the context of of the Canadian the full Canadian Constitution. So um, I, I know that I'm not going to be able to say the things that James Kitchen will about judicial activism, but I'm going to go there for a second here. So th this is what our the Chief Justice of our country, uh, Justice Wagner, said in the wake of the 2022 Freedom Convoy. Certainly the most important, uh, I think, most important uh, political event, public uh, policy event of, of this century in Canada, and perhaps even, you know, in the top 10 globally. Anyway, he said this in an, in an interview with Le Devoir. He said he characterized the protest on Wellington Street, where Parliament and the Supreme Court are located, as, quote, the beginning of anarchy, where some people have decided to take other citizens hostage. He says that uh, that uh, the, the article reports Wagner as having declared that, quote, forced blows against the state, justice and democratic institutions like the one delivered by protesters should be denounced with force by all figures of power in the country. And so I went back and I looked at kind of the history of, of our Constitution. And it's very interesting. You know, we talk a lot about the Charter and the Division of Powers and the Constitution Act. But if you go back far enough, a big part of our constitution, if you go back all the way back to the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution, is uh, and even all the way back to the Magna Carta, there's this tension between who is making laws, right? And for the longest time, there, there. If you look at uh, English history, um, there's this battle between Parliament and the King, and the mm -hmm. royal prerogative. Um, and, and but it's very interesting, I think, when you look at the Charter, and um, you know, many lawyers in Canada, including myself, I think were deceived or deluded or naive about the potential of the charter to be a bulwark against government overreach as you described it and when you look at the um, at the constitution act of 1982 and especially the charter and i'd be interested to know what bruce thinks about this uh is is it's almost as though um a, a revolution a quiet revolution occurred there because you have this transference of law of real lawmaking power mm -hmm. from the legislatures to judges who are mm -hmm. unelected bureaucrats they're politically appointed i don't want to paint them all with the same brush but I, I read what chief justice wagner said 
and and so um, we have these these unaccountable people. And throughout COVID, for whatever reason, the judges have in unison sung the chorus of the government's narrative and we can't vote them out of power in alberta people were really upset with our premier and we got rid of them we we can't get rid of chief justice wagner and and uh and so um in a real sense this judicial branch uh its role has has sort of morphed in canada and and i think part of the reason why our laws coming back to your original question sean this is the last thing i'll say before i hand it over one of the reasons I think why our laws haven't protected us is because, um, you know, the, the laws the you know, the COVID laws were made mostly by executive power and, and the people who are interpreting and applying those laws are unelected officials. And so, uh, you know, our elected, uh, uh, members of legislatures and parliament who are there to express the will of the people democratically, historically in our country, they're, they're not the ones who are imposing these laws and the judges can do what they will do what they want and the main problem of i, I think of judicial activism in our, in our country is that these courts are not answerable to the people for the decisions that they make and they wield tremendous power uh, so that's uh, that that's sort of uh, i just want to maybe throw that out there for discussion i'm interested to see what other people on the panel think about that right i james go ahead a couple comments on that. I think one thing that that people don't think about because it's sort of ivory tower stuff is is this idea of originalism and constitutionalism, or uh, or sorry, li living tree. Okay, so in Canada we have the idea that the law can change according to whatever the judges think is good for it to change, and the idea is being progressive and keeping up with the changes of society, which really sounds good if you're a typical Canadian or your your average university student or your averagely average mild socially socialist oriented adult in Canada, you think, well, that sounds good, right? I want to keep up with the times. I don't want all those knuckle draggers from the 19th century trying to keep us back in, you know, those days of white privilege or whatever they might call it. <clears throat> but the problem with that is the judges then have the ability to remake the nation in their image. Now they can't do it overnight, but they can do it probably within the course of a few decades, which really in history and in, and in legal history is a pretty short period of time. That's, that's part of what's going on, I think, in Canada, right? You have, and, and then the problem with that, of course, the connection to that is, well, then who are our judges and how are they being appointed and what are their ideologies? And that actually matters more, which it shouldn't, but it matters more when the judges have the ability to remake the country in their image. Because then what do you, what do you have if 90% of the bench or 90% of the, the lawyers from, from who the judges come from have a particular worldview, have a particular ideology, they cannot help but accept the invitation given to them to remake the country in their image. Very, very few humans can ignore that invitation and cannot take that up. We just can't help it, right? I mean, I mean, everybody knows the famous phrase of Tolkien. I've said it before, you know, power corrupts and men are attracted to power. We can't help it. And so, of course, part of the problem is that if you ignore that, you ignore that to your peril, right? So the founding fathers of America didn't ignore that. Um, <clears throat> so that's what you're seeing is section one of the charter, right? And the idea of the living tree means we can change the constitution, we can change the law over time. We can remake through our lawmaking ability, right? Through our, we call it judge-made law, right? You have all this case law. 2A of the charter or 2B of the charter doesn't mean anything on its own, right? It says protection for free expression. What does that mean? Well, we get to have 40 years of, you know, 60, 70 some odd cases from the Supreme Court saying what that actually means. So they get to say what the actual law is. The charter says this, but what matters is the test, right? The legal test that the judges come up with. Well, through section one, the living tree, they can do that. 
right? So this is why these, and I always say this, these deep philosophical ideas matter. We need to understand what constitutionalism or originalism and living tree means, right? The Americans have the approach of, look, the constitution says what it says. We're going to stick with that. It may be 250 years old, but it's, it doesn't mean it's not good, right? And so we're going to keep it the same so that judges cannot remake the nation in their own image, right? Which is a bad thing. And, um, we never even talk about that. We don't understand that. And we have no movement in this nation to go back to that. And I, and I would say, if we're ever going to give back the freedom that is our heritage that we came from, if we go back 150 years, is we're going to have to start talking about, wait a minute, is it okay for judges to use the Living Tree Doctrine in Section 1 to remake the nation? Well, no, it actually isn't. That's not democratic. That's not good for people. That's not going to represent all the people who actually like freedom and not socialism. So we need to stop that, Right. So I, if people need to understand that at a foundational level as we go on to understand, well, why didn't the law protect us? That's one reason why, in my opinion. I agree. Oh, I agree, too. I agree, too. I think that's, I think that's very true. But I, but I want to go a little further. So people, people think, and, and you've both alluded to this quite rightly, but people you know, went into this COVID thing with a belief, many of them, that the law was the law and the constitution was the constitution, you know, and, and, and the law consists of rules written down on the page in black and white. And that's what it says. And that's what it means. But of course, those vague words, like, you know, section two of, of the charter, they don't mean anything until courts interpret them because they're very vague, almost platitudes that really have no content to them. And so by virtue of, of putting the charter in place as, as Leighton started with you, you've created a, a, a system of constitutional governance where you start with legislative supremacy. That is legislatures can make any rules they want, any at all, except those rules that the court decides are contrary to the charter. And so you, what you have is you have two power bases competing with each other and in theory acting as a check and balance on each other but when you come to present day those two sources of power are on the same page they're cooperating along with the third which is the executive branch and public administration they all seem to agree in the way we should proceed and one of those ways is to give discretion to public administrators to make the best call on behalf of all of us as a group and if that means that on occasion we're going to set aside, you know, civil liberties because, well, you're just getting in the way, that's what's going to happen. So, and we, we're talking about, you know, why the, the law failed to protect civil liberties during COVID. And it did, but let me just turn this on its head for a moment and say this, as far as the administrative state is concerned, this was not a failure. It succeeded beyond its wildest dreams. Mm -hmm. this is was its pinnacle achievement at least so far mm -hmm. and they're not counting in terms of you know lives saved or or the like i mean they pretend to but what i really mean is they managed to manage the whole show and that's what they think it exists to do mm -hmm. and so now we have a legal system whose first principle more than anything else, we still have the old principles that are floating around there, 
but the but the active principle upon which our system is based now is the discretion of public officials to do what they think is best. Yeah, no, I uh, I read a book uh, recently uh, called uh, Mighty Judgment by a retired lawyer named Philip Slayton. It was uh, it's called Mighty Judgment: How the Supreme Court of Canada Ruins Your Life, and uh, <laughs> it's a very interesting book. The title kind of gives it away. Uh, it was written by a very eminent lawyer at the time, and, and very, very well known, I, I guess, in Ontario. Bruce would know better. Yes, but, yes, I, yes, I don't yeah. feel. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. And uh, but you know, one of the things that he points out about the Supreme Court is, uh, you know, they tend to uh, control uh, the narrative of, of what the law becomes in our country in, to a large degree by deciding by selecting which cases they will hear. And what's really yeah. fascinating about what's yeah. happened over COVID is, to my knowledge, they've refused uh, really delicious opportunities to decide important uh, COVID cases. There was a case out of British Columbia uh, concerning, you know, privatization of of, uh, of, of, of of medical services there. And, of course, we're living through, um, if you believe the COVID narrative that was presented to us, basically failure of medical systems throughout Canada to deal with the pandemic. And, and this was a very interesting issue and in that that could have gone before the Supreme Court of Canada. And that is, can there exist some form of private uh, medical health care? It seems to me that was a that was a really juicy issue for them to deal with. They they said, no, we won't hear it. Then more recently coming out of Alberta, James, James will be aware of this case, uh, this lady Lewis, who who has uh, basically been refused um, life-saving transplantation of, of, of her, her lungs. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was denied the ability. In fact, she was put on, she was put near the top of the waiting list. I believe she was as high as number two. And uh, she refused the COVID-19 vaccine. In fact, uh, she would be considered a very high risk to take it. And uh, a doctor is acting reasonably and scientifically probably would have counseled her against taking it, given what we know, what we know about the vaccines, but she she was uh, told by the Court of King's Bench that Alberta Health Services, you know, can't be can't be compelled to do anything because they're a, a private agency. That was essentially upheld by the Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court of Canada refused to hear that case. That was only uh, about three weeks ago, right? Like, right, yeah. right. And you would think that that is a really, really important case of national concern that the Supreme Court of Canada uh, would would want to decide for the good of the nation, which is part of their role constitutionally. But to, to my knowledge, they've brushed aside every single possible COVID case that could have come before them. And, and that's a concern too. That That's a form of judicial activism. Yes, yes it is. And it's part of this theme of the court abdicating from doing its job. The court has forgotten what its job is, right? I mean, Fundamentally, politically, <clears throat> I was just reading James Madison the other night, and he was. <laughs> he was I'm not surprised you're reading James Madison. <laughs> <laughs> he was. He was. I mean, I know this, but the, but this isn't taught on nearly enough. To, I think. I think to, to anybody who studies uh, arts at, at university, the, the the fundamental thing you have to have to stop tyranny, and the greatest thing to stop tyranny, and the required thing is the division of power amongst the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary. Right. We all know this. But um, what what freaked me out in March, because I was alive to this, is I immediately saw the collapse of this. Right. 
And I wasn't so just—I wasn't so surprised that the legislative and the executive seemed to collapse. Right, the legislature shut down, and now the now the cabinet and the health minister or the, or the public health officers in charge of everything. That's scary. That's bad. But I was still naive, and I guess stupid enough to think, okay, the, the courts are going to maintain independence. Right, they're going to think for themselves. Right, because that's their job. They're going to be sober about it. They're not going to they're not going to give in to all this uh, emotional hype and all this fear. They're not going to be psychologically compromised. They're going to they're going to be, remain independent. And then the courts just decided to close themselves. And I thought, oh dear God, now we're in trouble because now you have one, the executive. That's it, right? The three have collapsed into one. I mean, that is that is that is the definition of tyranny. That is the mm-hmm. recipe for tyranny. What did we get? We got three years of tyranny, right? And it's and it doesn't look like it's ever going to be reversed. Right. So the court immediately abdicated its duty. Its duty was to remain sober and sit there and stay open and say, OK, the government is doing this, but we are going to maintain the rule of law. We're going to do our job, even if that means personal risk. That's why they earn three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. And they have this very important position. OK, is they're not supposed to put themselves first, by the way. They're supposed to put, you know, the law and the country and the people first. So they stay there. They take the risk. They do their job. They don't freak out. They hold the government accountable. They keep holding trials. They keep going. Yeah, they got to keep their court staff safe. Okay, but this isn't a bullet. We knew that in January 2020. Okay, so but they completely abdicated, and that theme maintained, right? The the advance of judicial notice, which is when judges say, "Well, I don't need to look at the evidence of that because I already know it's so obvious." So there was a massive increase in judicial notice. There was a refusal to look at the evidence that was counter government or counter narrative. There was um, saying, "Oh, this is moot now. We're not going to hear it." And uh, this is Supreme Court saying we're not going to take these cases. This, this is a theme of the court saying, we don't care. Section one, government can do whatever it wants. We're not going to hear this. We're just going to stay completely out of it. So what you have now is you have the rule of law generally in Canada, which is still mostly intact, except if it's anything to do with COVID, nope, the complete carve out. There is no yeah. rule of law when it comes to COVID. You can, the government can say COVID and the rule of law vanishes. And you can't sustain that and keep a free nation in the long run. If you can have this one area where the government can say one word and, and the rule of law is gone, uh, that's not going to stay there. That's not, that's not sustainable. And that's, that's what's going to happen. Like you said, Sean, as we go on, that's what's going to happen. The next crisis a few years from now, whether it's climate change or God knows what, it's just going to keep going. You're going to have the unraveling of the rest of the rule of law and the rest of limited government and all the and individual rights. This can't be, this can't be sustained. But the courts apparently think it can, and it's it's very scary. So there's only one. To jump in on a couple of things. So just you know to fill in when when Leighton is talking about Sheila Lewis and and James is active for Sheila Lewis, um, and says she can't get the vaccine. Understand she was tested for antibodies and has such a strong immune response, meaning she has had COVID. She recovered from it and has such a strong immune response that it actually it can be dangerous to get the vaccine and to to be eligible and to get to number two of the list. Um, they couldn't find her childhood vaccination records, and she took all of the childhood vaccines again yeah. to be able to be on that list. So I don't want people to think that oh, you know, she's some radical anti-vaxxer. Um, she's acting quite reasonably and was acting reasonably. And, and so that the people viewing understand, um, you know, so we have the Alberta Court of Appeal make a decision. She didn't have the right to take it to the Supreme Court of Canada. There's rules as to, you know, when you have the right to get there. So maybe, it, you know, if you're in a, 
a provincial appeal court on a criminal matter and one of the justices dissents, you have a right. But otherwise you have to ask for permission. And I and and when you think that like people that are applying for leave the Supreme Court of Canada, and I know we've all been we've all been frustrated in that queue. I know I have. Um, you're only going through that action because you really do have a case that you passionately believe needs to be decided by the Supreme Court of Canada and you apply for leave. And I think it's less than one in 12. Like, so I mean, these right. are all important cases and um, maybe one in 12 to the grant permission. And I think it's something that we need to change going forward Yeah. Um, because, and, and I don't know what the solution there is, but, but something has to give. Another thing just to kind of clear up for the, the people viewing. So like, you know, when James is talking about section one and, and also James, you caught my attention. You were talking about how really the Supreme court of Canada has been, you know, remaking law. And it's yeah. something that, um, that I noticed, um, it, it accelerated after the charter because, um, so that people understand, you know, when we talk about the common law and we talk about precedent, we literally could have the courts over centuries. Um, like they, come to kind of some consensus on an issue <clears throat> and then like for long periods of time court no this is just the law and and we're not really arguing it and we're not really changing it you know like a rule of evidence or whatever and but then it hits the supreme court of canada in the last 25 years and it's like oh no we're smarter than these people hundreds of years ago and all this accumulated wisdom and they just you know the principled approach to to evidence you know regina versus like kgb and stuff like help me out you don't know now with any certainty <clears throat> whether evidence is going to get in or not and trials take a million years longer and it's just like it, it's so complicated to even bring a charter argument in a criminal case right. sometimes mm -hmm. you know you show me a legal aid lawyer that's going to bring a delay case help me out do they exist i know i used to but you know I drove a Hyundai pony to court because, you know, you're losing money on, on a whole bunch of files because the amount of time you put in where you're not actually getting paid, you know, exceeds what your office expenses are, even though you're lean. Uh, and, and I think even, and then just, you know, so people understand section one and, and I think we need to be fair to the people that drafted section one because, you know, the tension. So here we put these rights in, and and they're written to be somewhat you know absolute like and do we leave the courts who has the final say <clears throat> do we leave the courts to just say yes you have these rights and then we live with you know what what the limits they place there or do we have a safety valve because section one was meant to be a safety valve in my in my opinion it was meant to be you know something that would not be used often Right. And, you know, used with extreme caution and some strictness, but, but people viewing, they don't understand what it is. So section one basically says that the Canadian chart of rights and freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it. Now, if we stop there, we'd all be happy, right? The charter guarantees <laughs> the rights in it, but the mischief is follows subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by laws can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Well, that's the mischief, but I think it was meant to be, you know, there will be times where the government 
should be able to argue that kind of the corporate rights, you know, should in some circumstances override the individual rights. It's this um, collectivism of, you know, kind of the Quebec culture versus the individual rights of the of the English culture. Like we have that tension in Canada too. Yes. I don't think it, I don't think anyone intended what has just happened. Like when Brian Peckford says, I you know, the other premiers involved would be horrified. I believe him. Mm. All, all all true, all true. But but again, let's go a little further. Uh, let's 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 say this. So people, I think some people are under the impression that the charter is the foundation of our system. Mm, yeah, and it ain't. Yeah. It really isn't. You start with legislative supremacy, separation of powers, and then judicial supremacy interpreting the Constitution. And those rights that are listed in the Charter, although they're listed in black and white in absolute terms, except for Section 1, they, they can't possibly mean that. So take freedom of speech for a moment. Well, right, right off the bat, we, we know and accept that if you go up to somebody on the street and you threaten to stab them if they, unless they give the, you, you their wallet, well, that's speech, but it's also an assault. And there's a law that says you can't do that. And so suddenly, freedom of speech is being infringed. Now, for very good reasons, but but it is. So same with defamation. You can't just go around saying whatever you want to about people. That's an infringement of your freedom of speech. So the guarantee you have a freedom of speech in the charter is false. It's not true. It's never been true. And the problem is that the thing is stated in such bland, blanket, vague terms that nobody knows what it means. Yeah. And we've given the job of interpreting what it means to the court and the court's doing whatever the hell it wants over a period of, you know, 35, 40 years mm -hmm. on, 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 in various respects on various sections. So I think it's a mistake to view this COVID thing. It came upon us suddenly and it looked like a brand new world, a brave new world. And it was, it was in so many respects, but it's also the logical conclusion of a trend that's been underway for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One more example, the idea of separation of powers and the rule of law that James referred to. So it's been a long time that 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 legislatures have passed statutes delegating rulemaking authority to the executive branch. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe not in such an extreme way uh, as, as during COVID, but nevertheless, in a really serious way across the board, not just on health matters, but on mm -hmm. everything. And the courts over time have basically said, sure, that's fine. And so instead of having these three branches of government uh, of, of the state acting as a check and balance on each other, you have them all cooperating on the same project. And if you have this system where you have legislative supremacy and judicial supremacy, that is those two bodies have the last word on things. I mean, that can work. I mean, they have those features also in the US. But it works better there because there's 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 more of a tradition or maybe still a culture that exists that it, that that it believes in restraint mm -hmm. on the part of certainly some of the judges that are now sitting on on, on their Supreme Court in in Canada we have lost the legal culture of restraint and everybody believes together in the idea the government is there to manage all of us, regardless of right. what we want. Right. And, you know, just to extend Bruce's point, 
and at the risk of sounding cannibalistic, um, you know, we can't just bash judges. Um, no. The, the legal profession really failed people. Yeah. Uh, coming back to your original question about why didn't the law protect us? You know, historically, you know, the, you know, the bar has been, again, another bulwark against oppression and or it should be and in, and in, in every time you see um historically where um where, where people have lost freedom have lost have lost rights or where there has been you know god forbid you know genocide or things of that nature almost invariably you see destruction or disintegration of of the legal profession and i think that the legal profession the lawyers in canada had a very important role to play in protecting the public doing what they could to stand up against oppression and you know by and large uh, i have to say i'm very disappointed uh in 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 lawyers in this country many of them sat by were were spectators i can tell you there are friends i've had for a long time in the legal profession who don't talk to me anymore they think mm -hmm. uh I, you know i'm crazy um and and maybe i am but you know uh, it's important to note, for example, that uh, many of the large institutional law firms in Canada, in fact, almost invariably imposed vaccine mandates on their employees all yes. the way up through the partnership level. I know guys who are, uh, you know, major uh, important partners in law firms that were all but forced out and would have been forced out if the mandates had not been removed. Uh, so that's a sign that the legal profession at the highest level was complicit in the suppression and the oppression of individual human rights and freedoms. And I think that the legal profession uh, had a very important role to play. You know, God bless lawyers like the ones on this call and others like Catherine Christensen, who and, uh, you know, Sean will recall her testimony uh, in Red Deer when she talked about some of her clients or military clients who were basically insulted and, and, uh, and were almost ridiculed by the lawyers that they called. Uh, asking for help and they were just brushed off and said no you, you you've got nothing here and don't or don't call me uh i want nothing to do with you uh that that to me is is very very horrifying and i've had a hard time you know dealing with that actually and i i don't know i'd be interested to know what uh what the the, the thoughts of the other people on the panel are about this because it's something very troubling i'm very proud of the lawyers i know who have stood up, but I'm I'm very disappointed. I don't know what to make of, uh, you know, the 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 uh, profession. I thought prior to COVID that we were better than this, and and uh, I really hope that we were. And unfortunately, I I don't think I, I think I'd give the legal profession a failing grade on this question. Yeah, I would too. I would too. Yeah. I encountered similar things. My clients say, "Come to me." You know, I'm not the easiest to find if you're just searching for a lawyer on the internet. Almost everybody that comes to me, it's word of mouth. And I have people come to me. They say, "Look, I called 15 lawyers, and they all thought I was crazy, and they wouldn't talk to me." And then all of a sudden, I found, finally I talked to somebody who told me about you. I heard that over and over and over again from my COVID clients. Um, you know, I have something like um, 150 active clients right now. I've had 300 since I started, and. Um, you know, that's, they're almost all COVID related. And it was, and part of the reason I took these people, whether, whether I wanted to practice a different area of law or not, is it felt like, okay, you know, they have a real case, they have money to pay me and, and, and nobody else can help them because nobody else is willing to help them. And we talk about discrimination amongst, uh, like the law societies are all woke now, which is another whole other problem. But one of their big things is making sure 
us terrible discriminatory lawyers don't turn away, you know, black client or a native client or a transgender client or whatever. Right. Meanwhile, there's rampant discrimination in, in right in front of their noses. I mean, if, if you didn't take the vax or, or if you question the government's narrative, good luck hiring a lawyer. Right. They'd either give you some crap about how they were conflicted out because they got because somewhere somebody's got a government client or they just made up some other reason because they didn't want to take the case because they personally disagreed with it, which, of course, is against what lawyers are supposed to be about supposed to take the case. even if you personally disagree with it. Right. And um, that, that was that was a rampant problem that I, you know, by word of mouth from my clients, I heard I heard all the time. And I think it comes back to something that I've talked about before, which is your your legal system and your society generally is only as good as its people and its culture. You can have all this mm-hmm. stuff down. Right. We got human rights codes that are meaningless. Right. That have been around 50 years. They're absolutely meaningless. You had what, 50,000 Christians in this country who were discriminated against, lost their job, kicked out of something because they said, no, I can't take the shot because of my religious beliefs. Okay. So that, that, that human rights code means nothing. It's just, it's just a bunch of words on paper, just like a lot of the charter is, because it all comes down to the people. If the people who have any sort of decision-making ability at all, anywhere in society and culture, um, don't hold the basic values about human decency and non-discrimination and the rule of law and you know actually following evidence, and maybe questioning government once in a while, well, good luck. What you're going to get is a bunch of tyranny and a bunch of people who become second-class citizens. That's what we got for the last three years, right? If you didn't take the shot or you questioned the narrative or you were a Christian or whatever, right? And it didn't matter, by the way, if you were part of the oppressed class. I mean, I got lots of black female clients that are Christians and didn't take the shot and were treated like crap. It didn't matter that they were black and women, right? Because all these prejudices ran deeper than that. And people just threw out all these ideas that they virtue signaled about before. And, and I, I know I say this a lot about how, you know, I, I, I value the American society, uh, you know, as being a little bit healthier than Canadian. But I, I, I find that generally speaking, there's a better culture. There's, there's people, individual people uh, often hold up these ideals at a personal individual level better in the U.S. We had more law enforcement in the U.S. and said, no, I'm not doing this. You've had more judges like the one just on, you know, two days ago on July 4th said, no, I'm going to put, you know, my name out there and actually hold the government accountable and follow the constitution. You have all these lawyers fighting stuff. You got all these people standing up. There's this culture of I'm going to make personal sacrifices to stand by truth and do what's right. Now that happened in Canada. Some people did that, but they were, they were invariably people not in positions of power. They were just regular people or a few random lawyers like us. Um, you didn't have that amongst hardly at all amongst decision makers, law enforcement, etc. And if that's the where it is, if everybody's running and living in fear and only caring about their paycheck, well, goodbye to your decent society and people being treated equally because your law rests on individuals making individual decisions to do what's right and to follow it and to enforce it, even if it may be personally costly to do so. And that's a problem. Fundamentally, Canadian culture is in, is in trouble because mm-hmm. we've lost these ideals. Mm-hmm. And here we are. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, John. Well, you know, when you're talking about culture, something that came to mind and and um, <clears throat> something that's troubled me for some time, and you know, I'll I'll even just say the extreme statement that I've I've now reached the opinion that a um, a professional Department of Justice in the long term is inconsistent with maintaining a liberal democracy. So it's funny as I um well, and let me just let me just talk about this for a second, but it took me a while to arrive at this opinion, but we're supposed to have a separation between the courts and the government. 
I, I practiced most of my career, well, the beginning part of my career, my office was always in Kamloops, but then I became like, I'd go all over the country because I became quite specialized. But, you know, in Kamloops, in the courthouse, on the third floor, you have the Crown Council office. And on the fourth floor, you have the provincial court judges. And on the fifth floor, you have the uh, superior court judges, all in one building. And, um, and, and I always found that offensive because, you know, I was trained in law school that we have this separation and, and appearance matters and location and location matters. But um, here we have a professional department of justice acting for the attorney general. Now the attorney general is charged with upholding the law, it takes an oath, every provincial and federal attorney general well, this, the Supreme Law, according to Section 52 of the Constitution Act 1982, is the Constitution. Now, have any of you ever witnessed a Department of Justice lawyer, a Crown Counsel, attending in court and agreeing that charter rights were violated and this is egregious and we should uphold the Constitution? And I see everyone smiling. So let me, under, <laughs> let me explain to the people watching why you're laughing. So I literally could be going to court, and this is a fact pattern I had. So before before cannabis became legal, I had um, a young couple who woke up in the middle of the night with the light being turned on in their bedroom, and the bed is surrounded by you know armed police masked with machine guns over you know a tip that they had a little bag of marijuana in their house. And uh, the husband's going, well, just hang on a second. Let me slip out of bed and get close for my wife because she's naked under the covers. No, for security reasons, we have to grab that blanket and yank it off. And, you know, this woman isn't counseling for years to deal with this. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm, I, and, and we even have to go to court and argue that this is outrageous over a little bag of weed and listening to have to endure the Crown Council argue about how this is okay. And time and time and time again, the, the Crown with more resources. I mean, I've been on, on constitutional cases where the lawyers in court are seven to one, but you know there's a whole team behind them because it's an important, it, like just the, the unrelentless resources that, that the Crown puts day after day, the professional department of justice puts day after day after day in an unfair fight because of the resources, arguing that we, sh we don't have rights and shouldn't have rights, and it's okay for them to be trampled. And they develop this culture as an organization. I mean, if somebody came into my office and said to me today, we need to go and get a constitutional declaration against the government, I would say, are you like, do you have, are you crazy or like you just have money to burn because they have a playbook and you tell me that I'm wrong. They have a playbook on how to exhaust you mm -hmm. financially, morally and spiritually so that you don't even get to court. Like if you had rule of law where, you know, disputes between the citizen and the government are dealt with, like, so that's rule of law. Like, no, we have a disagreement. You independent court then the Department of Justice's role should be you get the real, let's narrow down to the real issue, let's admit everything else, let's just get to that point really quickly and let the court decide. 
but but we all experience the absolute opposite. Who wants to go against the Department of Justice in a civil file? Give me a big law firm, you know, with a private client any day of the week, mm -hmm. any day of the week. Now, and how can that be? Because they're supposed to be serving the citizen, but they serve the government. And so, like I said, it took me a long time to reach that conclusion, but I, I do not see a professional Department of Justice being consistent. And just, so let's take it to the area of criminal law. You know, what if you had a pool of lawyers that practice criminal law and, and they had to agree, you're practicing criminal law, you've got to agree that they can just select your name for the acting as the Crown. And so now this, this week you're acting for the Crown on a file against another lawyer who's going to be Crown against you on another case you have. You're not arguing about disclosure. We all know what the rules are and we're not playing games. Like, can you just see how much more fair that would be? Because mm -hmm. we don't have a culture. We don't have a, a professional culture with unlimited resources, literally, um, against the citizen. Yeah. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on It's just you got me thinking about culture, right? Well, but these are very harsh lessons, right? And if there is any silver lining to this COVID thing, I've been saying that that it is the fact that the curtain's been pulled back on how their system, you know, their system actually works. People should know how the system actually works, what it actually means. Yes, the law is a product of the culture. And if the culture turns, the law is no protection because as you've alluded to, it's the people inside the system that determine what the law means. Um, you know, from an, let's look at it from an anthropological point of view. You know, the, the law is nothing more, it's, 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 not a, it's not a bounded set of rules that govern us. It's a political language whose role is to legitimize political decisions, whatever those decisions happen to be. And all of the, all of the, all of the due process that we have, all of the principles and the rules and the interpretation and so on, you know, you could characterize those as just trappings of the ritual that ensure that if they're there, that means everybody will consider the, the answer to be correct or at least legitimate regardless of what the substance of the thing was. Right. And, and, and so on, in, in those terms, people should not be thinking that the law is going to save them from the culture mm -hmm. because that's not the way it works. And what you saw in what you saw in COVID is, you know, the, sort of the, the 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 crest of the wave of a changing culture, and the people who were working working inside that system have got a now a, a a different set of ideas in their head about how the thing's supposed to work than they might have in a former era. And you know, we've been praising the U.S. and there's some better things about the way the US system works, but they have their own problems too. I mean, mm -hmm. they, you can you can see how at the highest levels of their system, the law is becoming weaponized in a in a, in a very political way. So mm -hmm. they're they're not they're not free and clear either. They got a whole lot of trouble on their on their own. But 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 I think the assessment of the situation here is correct. We we are I hate to put it this way, but we tend to be a nation of followers. And there are fewer individuals who are willing to stand up and say, no, 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 people. Uh, you know, this is, this is not the way to go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the old, uh, the old adage, I think it's Lord Acton, about uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I think 
I think we're seeing that uh, manifested in Canada right now, uh, in, particularly in terms of exercise of executive authority and um, looking forward. Um, you know, we can talk about, you know, the last three years and how bad it was before. But if you cast your gaze forward and you see some of the things that are happening in terms of the WHO pandemic treaty that Canada and other nations have signed on to, and then you hear people like Bill Gates, you know, talking about the next pandemic, um, you know, there there is a, a terrorizing feature to that that I think uh, plays upon the minds of, of, of people. Um, you know, who have been, let's face it, I mean, the NCI showed this. People have been traumatized by this. Um, I think to some degree I've been traumatized by this. I mean, I, 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 I've now in, I live in the stark reality that the Canada I live in today is not the one I thought I was living in four years ago. I thought it was in, living in a much different country, frankly, a much better country than it's turned out to be. I still think that Canada has greatness in it. I still believe that Canada's best days are ahead of us. If we can figure out a way to govern ourselves much better. And I think part of what Sean was saying, you know, this idea of uh, vesting so much power in the state. And as Bruce says, trusting the government to look after us. Those are things if, if Canada is going to reach its potential as a nation, those are the types of ideas that I think need to be very carefully scrutinized and challenged um and, and of course we i don't think we have the people in our political culture right now at least the professional politicians who are willing to do that i don't see that spirit in the judiciary and so i guess my question is you know where is that going to come from culturally how do we how do we change the culture going forward so that um when we do have a challenge like covid coming at us again and we will how are we going to respond to that in a way that's that is more dignified and more respectful of of individual human beings uh and and respects their 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 humanity um than what we saw during COVID. uh and i don't have the answer to that but i think i think the answer starts with um you know how do we change the how do we change this culture and get back to uh more of a culture that is uh that promotes self-reliance individual responsibility uh individual expression um, and perhaps most importantly, the ability to have difficult conversations mm -hmm. in which people have differing points of view and they don't have to risk offending each other. This to me was one of the most uh, dangerous things that happened during COVID was the censorship of ideas because, you know, we've always been a culture in the West, you know, that has been prepared to have speech you think of John Milton and Areopagitica, you know, the, the, this idea that strongest steel is forged and hottest fire. And I think one of the ways that we're going to recover the, the culture and have a system of laws that actually protects people, that makes people feel safe, is we've got to have the ability to, to, to have these, these difficult conversations. And these were suppressed. They were suppressed in courts. They were suppressed in the media. Hell, they were suppressed in the coffee shops. Um, you know, everyone knows what it was like uh, during the vaccine mandates where, you know, families would, uh, wouldn't get together. And, and uh, there are still members of families who don't talk to each other. And we heard a lot of this testimony during the NCI. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a key thing that we've got to get back to is having difficult conversations um, and, and having the freedom to do that. Yeah. If there is any freedom of speech, 
that's protected in our society. That needs to be it, in my respectful view. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I our record though on freedom of speech is not very good, as you know. <laughs> we have we have some even like this is much this is before COVID. We have some terrible laws on the books and have had that infringe freedom of speech, and everybody shrugs. Yeah. yeah. In the courts. I you know, one, one, one of the worst examples for me is is the BC Human Rights Code, which basically says that you're not in, in your public statements, private people are not allowed to discriminate in their speech, in their expression of their yeah. opinions. Yeah. I mean, that is not a country that values free speech. Mm-hmm. And we, we crossed that threshold long before COVID came along. So I totally yeah. agree with you. But it's yeah. going to be a real challenge to to turn this ship around. And, mm-hmm. and get back to something very, very different. Because a lot of people have now this culture in their heads that it is not okay, especially younger generations, that it's not okay to say things that are not true in the in the opinion of the authorities. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and you, you you can't you can't operate a free country with that kind of assumption. Yeah. If if I can just share a, an antidote, just because you've got me thinking, Bruce. So I was. I was at a shooting tournament about a month and a half ago, and I was talking to a, a guy who was on the same squad who was from Poland, you know, during the Solidarity Days and the revolution. And, uh, you know, I was saying, well, it must be terrible to be kind of watching Canada become a communist state. And he says, well, you know how you tell whether you're in a communist state? Like, no. He says, when you have to watch what you say. He right. Said, he said, we're already there. Right. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. Said yeah. the, the degree may change, but you're already there. You're already you're already afraid of what you you can say, and yeah. I never thought that we would be in a situation where we would have to worry about what we say, and yet you know, like at the NCI, we're thinking, oh, we need to get like jump drives or little hard drives where we can put the entire thing on there and just sell them to people at cost so that when we get taken down somehow <laughs> that record survives for generations later right because you know and like how long are we going to be free to have conversations like this online mm-hmm. right yeah yeah well how, how much longer are lawyers going to be free to have these conversations in, in any way that maybe may be recorded and reported to the law society yeah. I mean, I mean Leighton is clearly more hopeful than I am. I, I'm often a Debbie Downer in the in the, the freedom <laughs> movement. Uh, and, and I've had clients ask me the question. Well, actually, I'll tell you what. During during 2020 and 21 in particular, I've had clients ask me, should I leave the country or should I stay because there is some reason to think that this country can turn around? I had clients ask me that. I, I had probably half a dozen people that I was one of the significant reasons they fled the country. I said, <laughs> in my, I said, in my honest opinion, this country is beyond the point of return. And if you have a way out, I think for your sake, if you want to live as a free person, you should take it. And people really appreciated that because they heard they heard a lot of people in the freedom movement over the last three years saying, hey, look, there's hope and we can get through this and we can overcome this and we can we can we can win these cases and we can hold the government accountable. I never held that view. Now, I always held the view that we should fight anyways, because it's wrong to be nihilistic and give up and not fight. We fight anyways. But I never fought with any real hope that we would succeed. I never really thought in 2020 that we would be here three years later talking about the cases that we want. I never really thought that. Right. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you, James. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And I, for me, one of the main reasons for pessimism, we've been talking about 
governments and courts and legislatures and so on, you know, the executive branch overreaching with their powers and so on. But the real thing for me is that as all of this has been happening, both during COVID and even before that, but especially during COVID, the population approved and wanted it to be done more. Yeah. Yes. You know, it, this was not a case where governments were running wild, doing things that the population objected to in a kind of dictatorship. That's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. The government was, was doing things that an awful lot of people approved of. And that, more than anything, to me, is a reflection of the fact that, you know, to, 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 to really fix this, you've got you've to gotta change things that are very deeply embedded now. And I don't mm-hmm. know exactly how you do that. Yeah, I don't either. But you're you're quite right, Bruce. I know. Um, I remember reading that um, most of the most of the things that governments were doing in terms of lockdown measures was based upon polling. Yeah, they were polling people and finding out, oh, and, wow. and what people were saying is is yeah, give us more, give us more lockdowns, give us give us more mask mandates, and the only thing that ultimately changed the picture was that freedom convoy. You know, God bless right, us, right. Right. Without that, where would where would we be? You know, where would we be right now? Yeah, we probably would have been locked down last winter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and then, of course, it raises speaking of the truckers, you know, you got to ask the question about what what sort of uh, what sort of trial uh, is a Chris Barber or Tamara Leach going to receive in this country? Um, You know, Art Art Pawlowski, you know, he's he's going to be. Uh, sentenced to soon, I believe, in the early part of August. Um, I have you know, to his say that, is, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, what, 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 one of the bright spots for me was was watching uh, Tamara Lich's um, uh, bail appeal being heard by superior yes. court judges. Yeah, yeah. And you know, she was put it. She was put in jail, denied bail by lower court officials, and then on two occasions that the case came before superior court judges, who basically said, "No, this is not right," and and let her go. And and they were very good, and so I I do, I, I that, that was encouraging to me, and I do harbor some hope that you know she might indeed get a fair trial, but we'll mm-hmm. you know we'll just cross our fingers. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, but I I uh, I hope so too. I had the pleasure of meeting Chris Barber recently, and uh, he's sort of in the same camp. I know that he said that uh, they tried to to bring a change of venue application. Uh, because uh, it seems to me, or it seems clear from what's been reported in the media, <laughs> I say that with an, with an asterisk, that um, there's a lot of people in the city of Ottawa who are, are very against, you know, the Freedom Convoy and the truckers. Sure. Yeah, right. And so it would seem to me that a change of venue would have been a rational thing to do, or at least a reasonable precaution. But uh, but apparently that application was denied. There wasn't mm. there wasn't grounds for you know for doing it. The other thing that's interesting about the truckers, speaking of them, and this is an interesting um, sort of new development in the law, is uh, there's this this massive uh, class action that's been brought against against the truckers, um, which seems to be, I mean, over things like honking, um, but but they're asking for hundreds of million hundreds of millions of dollars in damages, and that's an interesting feature. Uh, in that it seemed it would seem to be a very strong and perhaps intended to be a very strong discouragement or indeed punishment 
of people who would have the temerity to try this again. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, which again and, and, goes against one of our fundamental rights, which is the right of the freedom to to organize and associate and protest publicly, right? Yep. And and no government is speaking against that. Like so no. I mean, who who's gonna organize a protest to, you know, shut down Parliament Hill or, you know, or to block traffic or to do anything to get attention? And um, you know, the fact that, you know, civil and you know, and who even thinks up this stuff? Like, who's ever heard of a class action against a group of protesters? Coming back to my point about the lawyers. No, 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 I know. But I mean, it's just what a crazy oh. world that 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 could be happening. Like, I mean, I, I'd gotten to meet Tom Marazzo because he, you know, I prepared him as a witness and he testified at the NCI. And like, I don't he there people are going after him civilly for, you know, and it's like the, the figures being thrown around, like, and the guy... It would just it would destroy you. So now, you know, if you're going to stand up for freedom and stand up for what you believe in, you have to understand you're going to be totally financially destroyed. And that's oh. that's meant as a discouragement and that the government all levels of government. I don't hear a peep out of anyone for any of this madness. It's like this, this is ever tightening control grid. I mean, we've been joking about maybe losing our rights to practice, but even the fact that we joke about it means that it's at the back of our minds. Oh yeah. And I, and I had to become public with the NCI as counsel. I like it. It was definitely at the back of my mind. Oh, am I going to lose my license to practice over this? I, I was actually a little bit surprised. I don't know if you agree with this, Sean, that the NCI was permitted to even proceed. I mean, I, I you know, I, I actually thought that at some point um, that, that, that there would be efforts made to shut it down. You know whether it was uh, on the basis of, you know, an injunction or defamation or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, something that that a crazy lawyer would do if they were paid enough money. But I was, uh, you know, I think it it perhaps is a hopeful sign that the NCI was allowed to complete its mission, uh, not without you know facing some pretty stiff winds of resistance. Let's face it. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that uh, there were shutdowns on social media and and things that you guys battled all the way through. Uh, but uh, but at least you were able to to finish off your your mission, uh, or at least to you know to go through all of the I believe it was eight cities. And, yeah. And, oh no, it, and, when, it yeah. was quite something when you think about it. So yeah. What w- one of one of the hopeful things or the reverse, and I'm not really sure how to what category to put it in, is that it seems to me that there are an awful lot of people out there, including lawyers who, although they don't want to say anything out loud in the privacy of their own thoughts, actually don't agree with the place we're getting to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, on the plus side, that means that that there's a lot of people who understand and can see what's happening. On the other hand, it means that not many people who see it are willing to actually stand up and say so. So I'm not sure how to see that, but it's maybe not as dire as the as the obvious picture looks. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. I hear that a lot. I imagine anybody in our situation, you know, if they talk enough to their, to their colleagues and peers and people they encounter uh, hear that. I I certainly hear it a lot. You know, thank you, Mr. Kitchen. You're saying all the things that, you know, I I don't feel I could say or say. actually some people have been pretty open and honest. I mean, other lawyers just said, I can, I just couldn't say that. Right. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Well, exactly, exactly. But James, so what's your assessment of that? I mean, I, 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 sh- I, I think I share your 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 view on these things 
uh, in many respects. Do you, do you take that as a as a negative or a or a or a crushing blow? Sorry, a negative or a negative crushing blow or a reason for optimism. Overall, I take it as a net negative. I mean, that, that it does indicate that people like us are the, are the tip of an iceberg. I just, I mean, I, I do think that iceberg is fairly small, but the trouble is that um, how are we going to grow that iceberg to make it the majority? I mean, I mean, I mean, the, the amount of people who disagree with what happened over the last three years are a minority in Canada. I'm convinced of that. Maybe a significant minority, maybe, hopefully it's 35, 40%. But how in the world are we supposed to grow that? If we don't have more than 0.02% of the population who is willing to pay the cost to speak up, I mean, you mm -hmm. could probably fit in my backyard the amount of lawyers in the country who yeah. would, would do what we're doing. I mean, how many lawyers do we have as witnesses at the NCI? One of the things that struck me as funny when I was, when I, I offered to be, to be an expert witness, I said, I look, I know you must have a dozen or two dozen or three dozen lawyers that want to do this. Probably all more experienced, better qualified than me. But if you need anybody, come talk to me. And I was amazed that there was like three or four of them. And I thought, yep, this, this is indicative of the problem, right? They're 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 almost almost all of them are scared. Now, of course, there's very few of them that even that even agree with us. But amongst that amongst that amongst the two thousand lawyers in the country who agree with us, there's what two hundred that are going to speak out and take the cases and do do what we're doing here today. That's a problem. How are we supposed to change the culture, which we have to do over the next 20, 30, 40 years? How are we yeah. going to change it if we don't have more people speaking out? Because here's the thing. Yeah. As, as we get more and more censorship on places, on platforms where you could actually, one person could reach a lot of people, okay? As we get more censorship there, the only way it's gonna work is if we have more people reaching small numbers of people through means that are more difficult to censor, right? Yeah. So that's the, that's the trouble. We need, we need way more people like us, and it doesn't, doesn't you can be lawyers, you can be doctors, you can be whatever, right? We need way more people like us spread out using, using those hard, difficult to censor platforms to, to, mm -hmm. to trade or influence, I think is the word mm -hmm. now culture in order, in order to change people's thinking. I, I can tell you, uh, I can tell you, James, uh, you know, I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna singing in the woods. Um, but to me, there are some, some signs. One of them, one thing you talk about culture. One thing we also know about culture is that it's always changing. And one thing that's interesting as I go around and, and I've been doing some public speaking is and talking with young people is, you know, uh, and this this is sort of a, a little bit mind bending, but the idea of, of freedom, a culture of freedom, is becoming a, a counterculture. Yes. And when you look back through history, you know, young people really they 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 glom onto, they seize upon counterculture. And if if we do, and this sounds sort of bizarre, but if if we do have a society in which the the things that the values that uh, we 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 think that the four of us think are important, and that we're historically important in this country. Become a counterculture, and the youth hook onto that or or hook into that. Um, things can change very very quickly. I'll give you one example. Um, we, we had a provincial election in Alberta, uh, uh, you know, a couple, I guess a couple of months ago, a month and a half ago, and um, uh, there was a, an organization called Take Back Alberta, mm -hmm. which put together in very short order. Uh, a, a performance of Jordan Peterson. And if you've not seen Dr. Jordan, Jordan Peterson speak in public, you really must because he's he's done something with public speaking that really he's taken it to a performance art level. Uh, and it actually, you can actually see how much it takes out of him physically. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but this was put together in a very short, he appeared in Red Deer 
and the ticket prices uh, to have a bunch of people sit in an arena to listen to, no, no offense, Bruce, to listen to an intellectual uh, and, and to pay the, what it would cost to see the Rolling Stones or you too, uh, to, to listen to a public intellectual speak for an hour to me and, and to see how many young people were there at that event. Uh, to me, that's encouraging. That shows me that there is a hunger. Um, there is a yearning in our country uh, for truth. And, and, uh, and when, when uh, we have, a, and, you know, thank God for him. Um, but for, for people like Dr. Jordan Peterson, but when you, when, when I see that it does, it does give me some hope and encouragement that perhaps there's a way to get to the other side of this, uh, even though things look pretty, pretty dark at the moment. Well, that, and that's why I say 30 or 40 years, right? Yeah. It's, like, it's a Wilberforce period of time because the only way you can do this is to, and, you know, it's, it's, it's insidious because it, it cuts both ways, right? How did yeah. we get, you know, men in the 30s in, in Germany who, who could, you know, put a bullet in the heads of Jews? Well, because you took them in the 20s and, and, and you radicalized them for tyranny, for hatred, for prejudice, for whatever. If you take youth, right, and you radicalize them for freedom, individual rights, um, with limited government, right? Well, what are you going to get? 30 or 40 years later, you're going to get a culture of people who are in positions of influence and power who actually do believe in these ideas or these ideals of individual rights, freedom, etc. Well, well, now they're the ones who are who are driving culture. That that's exactly what we have to do, right? I mean, that's what that's what Josh Alexander, for example, is doing, right? Yes. He's all these yes. all these teenagers, and he's radicalizing them for protecting women, uh, sticking to truth. Uh, upholding individual rights, your your ability to actually disagree with something and not get kicked out of school, right? And yeah, all these kids are rallying around him because it's the, it's now the counterculture, right? Yeah. It's crazy, but I mean that's how when you look back at the at the '60s, it's crazy to think it was it was the Democrats and the, all the mm -hmm. they're the ones fighting for freedom for free speech. I mean it's crazy. I've seen these black and white pictures of people in colleges in the '60s. It says free speech, and these are the same people 60 years later that are that are doing the censors, right? Yeah. So it's yes, crazy. Yes, with, yes. Yes. That raises another problem of the cyclical thing with with history, and this is why it goes back to how you have to have you have to have, as James James Madison would say, not merely words on paper. You have to have practical, literal things in place to have the checks on power. Because no matter how good your ideals yeah. are when you start, right? If you only have words on paper, then all those rights will be violated eventually, right? You have to have something real in place. We didn't have something real in place in Canada. All we have is these words on paper, right? Don't discriminate against Christians, you know, if they don't want to take the shot. Meaningless. You know, uh, you can't um, you can't just shut down society. That's what generally what the charter would, would say that. That's meaningless, right? Because it's just words on paper and there's no consequences for violating it. If we're going to fix it, we've got to change the culture. And also somehow, I mean, our institutions in Canada are so broken. We have to somehow put something more than just words on paper on how we actually stop all these future violations. We've got to get people who actually believe in the ideas of freedom and limited government. And then they got to actually put something better in place than just words on paper, right? So we can actually fix our institutions. And I, I do, by the way, as, as, as pessimistic as I am, I do believe that's possible. I just think it's really, really difficult. Just as difficult as it was in the beginning, you know, in the, in the, in the late 1700s to think we can abolish slavery in Britain. It's, I think it's just as difficult, but just as possible in the long run, we got to have a long, long game view of this. And yeah. who knows? Maybe when I'm, you know, older than you guys are, we actually do have a free nation again. Well, you'll never be older <laughs> than I am. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But but this raises a very interesting question. I mean, lots of questions, but one of them is this. So is what is is the, is the stage we're at now an aberration? Is it is it a, is it a is it the loss of the ideas that we started with? Have those ideas been been, been bastardized and 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 not followed or is this the logical conclusion of the ideas that we began with? And so do we have to rethink from the start? And I'm not sure which of those two things it is. No. So can I chime in? Because, um, and it's not just because I love these ideals that we stand for. I think, I think that actually, you know, freedom and, and a civil society that treats each other like they expect to be treating, treated is, is something that just is intuitively attractive. But what I'm wondering is, is because, you know, and Bruce, you were talking about culture and James was talking about culture. <clears throat> we, I was on a, a Twitter spaces call earlier this week and Jay Cooey was on there. Mm. And uh, he said something that, that I can't shake. Mm. And, and he, was, he was saying, <clears throat> and I, I don't know if, if, it's, if it's true or, or not true, but he said, can you actually imagine you know, what the leadership was told, these government leaders, like, wouldn't it be that they would be having these meetings and saying, and be, and they would be told, like, this is so dire, it's crazy. Like, we, you can't even talk about what we're telling you going forward because, like, we don't know if the Chinese are going to release another variant. We actually don't know how, like, we know this is bad, but... Like basically he was painting a picture where these, you know, the leaders are being told this is so much worse than than you know what the public's told. Like you have to you have to distill this down and actually keep the public from understanding how bad this is so we can keep a lid on it. And you can't even talk to your family about this. And and I'm thinking now I'm a public health officer, because they seem to believe. Like we didn't see hesitation. And, and it, it can't because they also seem to enjoy the rock star status. But he was just introducing the idea like, you know, you don't know what they were told. And, and let's say you believed it was going to be something really, really awful. It's going to take you a long time to see that it's not right. But I have a scenario that's worse. I have a scenario that's worse than that. And the scenario is that they weren't sat down and told. Mm -hmm. that, that they but they that they have that they have absorbed the culture sufficiently so that they knew what they were supposed to do without being told what to do mm. that that i mean i'm and i'm i'm sure that we talk about the courts you know all these court decisions that we've been talking about did not come about because somebody you know told that judge that he couldn't find this way in a case that that did not happen. That's not the way mm -hmm. these things occurred. Yeah, they occurred because all these courts happen to have the same set of ideas in their heads, mm -hmm. as with a lot of the politicians and the public health officials and so on. And I think that's a bigger problem than you know an actual concrete situation where you've know, got somebody corrupt going into a room and saying, you know, you will do this because yada yada yada. That that's a fixable problem. Mm -hmm. That's undue, in, in undue influence. The, mm -hmm. the cultural thing is a much bigger problem because everybody understands what they're supposed to do. And, right. and what supports what you're saying is, it's like, I mean, we saw employers and we saw private sector. We had, 
we saw people and we just saw private people becoming extreme like i mean i i remember hearing things like they should put the back unvaccinated in camps and you know we should yeah, have sure. the army going sure. door to door and basically solving this and you know one thing that's always our prime minister said that our prime minister said that you know he said that publicly he said you know you fine you don't want to get vaccinated then well then you you know you then you then you shouldn't be able to you know get on a train or an airplane with somebody who wasn't vaccinated because you're a pariah you know yeah our prime minister he said that more than once actually in and english yeah, remember, and French. remember mm -hmm. the line is you know how long should we tolerate them oh yes right. yeah. yeah how how long should we tolerate them yeah what what uh and you know the thing that like i'm thinking you know if when we get control of our institutions back and reform our criminal law um, you know, right now, um, if somebody tells you to do something who has authority over you, you know, and then Nuremberg had to deal with this. No, you still have personal responsibility for doing bad things because you're told. But I think we have to go a step further that actually, you know, you've got double the liability. If somebody tells you to do something, you're following orders, you're actually doubly liable um, yeah. for, you know, for hurting others. Like we actually have to, you know, sometimes you have to overcompensate to ingrain in the populace. It's not okay because you've been told. So, yeah. um, but I mean, it's just this whole culture of fear and actually culture of control. Like I think even, you know, being in a debt culture, like how many professionals went along because they were afraid of, of, you know, they couldn't pay their mortgage and stuff like that. Like there's all these different things that put us in a position where we, we had no choice. It's, I don't know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious. I, I was sharing before the call, but we never really. I, I never asked what your your thoughts were. Like, um, who was it in this call that spoke about Chief Justice Wagner? It was you, Leighton. Yeah, read, it was me. Yeah, you read what he had said and led to yeah. war. Um, I looked him up on the Supreme Court of Canada site today as I was just kind of mulling about you know our call, and um, I noticed that on his page. It, it um, mentioned that he had been the served in in his role as administrator in from january to july of 2021 so you know basically as we're releasing the vaccines you know to a limited subset of the population until they're available for everyone and i was what 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 do you mean administer that's that's not a term i think of as the chief justice of the supreme court of canada so you know i i click on the link and that you know that's serving that's what you're called when you when you serve as the in the attorney or governor general's role when governor general isn't isn't uh, sitting or available or or appointed to do that and i thought well that's interesting we're supposed to have um at least we think we're supposed to have a separation of powers it's not set out as as succinctly and clearly as the u.s constitution but here we have the chief justice of the supreme court and and forgive me you know i'm I, is is that is that in our constitution i should know that as somebody that's read it several times but i don't recall that the chief justice steps in for the attorney general um when there's an absence it might be that that's the case but if that is the case that in itself is scary because that's our chief executive well that's sort of what i mean by asking the question about whether we got here because of the original ideas instead of in spite of them Mm -hmm. Because there, there are there are so so, let's go back to the beginning with the legislative supremacy and the judicial supremacy. 
in, where it's a constitutional case. I mean, our system of government is still based upon the idea that somebody's going to have authority to tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. And that worked fine for a long time, again, because we had people in power, I guess, be, who, who, who respected the boundaries of their authority, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And certainly the courts, uh, you can find lots of quotes and cases, old cases about, you know, how the job of the courts is to keep public bodies within their, in their powers and, and so on and so forth. They don't seem to behave that way anymore. But <laughs> nevertheless, we still have those propositions as the foundations of our system. Legislatures can still do what they want. And what they want to do now is delegate their authority. And, and, and courts have said, fine. And so in a way, you could argue... No, we're actually just carrying out those basic <laughs> ideas still, and now everything's gone south. But, you know, how would you do it otherwise? How would you set up a constitutional order that avoided the, 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 the necessity for having somebody with authority have the last call? So can, can I just like historical context, because it's already come up in this call about, you know, the Magna Carta and all of yeah. this, where yeah. really it was a competition between parliament and the king who has the right to make laws which is who has the right to have control over the citizens right and maybe maybe we're entering and this is kind of the birth pains of the next phase where it's it's some type of order is set up where the power is vested in the citizen i, I mean yeah. i don't know but i mean it it is interesting i mean i i got into law not to be a lawyer i wanted to be a political science professor and talk about the social underpinnings of the british north america act which are anything but democratic and, and right exactly, exactly. Yeah. Right. towards the average citizen's intelligence yeah. and and i only went into law to then become a law professor um because less competition in, in the humanities right because white male when you know any vacancy came up from the baby boomers it would be filled with um not a white male um but then the woke culture was already in the law schools and i thought i there was real division and uh, I just thought I don't want to be in that work environment and being somebody who hates conflict, I ended up being a lawyer. But, <laughs> you know, you do kind of wonder at, at the legal philosophical basis of our power structure set out in the Constitution, which really is we've just inherited from the British system. I mean, it 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 does not vest power in the citizen. No. It, it does not trust no. the citizen. Like it does not trust the citizen. And, and yet we've grown up in this kind of rich culture where we're told we're free to the point that, you know, maybe the four of us on this call are kind of deluded into believing something exists or should exist. It definitely doesn't exist. That's um, what I mean. That's what I, mean. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. That, that, that's what I mean by having the curtain pulled back. Mm -hmm. We're actually seeing that maybe we're not as free as we thought. Mm -hmm. and and that and that the the system that we've always had that we believed would protect those freedoms actually doesn't do that at all mm -hmm. and so this is why i'm questioning the premises i mean it's very easy to laud those premises because they did work and when you had the legislature and the king fighting that was probably a good thing because then, then they were they were checking and balancing each other but when you have modern day situations where the institutions are cooperating very closely and agree with the same idea that doesn't work so well anymore and and you get a better picture of, of what you've actually got 
And actually, mm-hmm. and as you say, the system that we have was never really based upon giving power to the individual. It was always mm-hmm. subject to a paternalistic authoritarianism, mm-hmm. which, which again, you know, worked pretty well for for quite a while in many respects, but mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be working very well now. No. Well, you know what. <laughs> And, and Bruce, I agree with you. The Americans do have their problems, but let's look at their system, right? Let's let's look at what they started with, the, the, the yeah. bones of it, right? They're 250 years in, and they are a freer nation than we are. We're Agreed. only 150 years in, and we have arrived closer to tyranny in that smaller amount of time. And I, yes, it goes back, I think, some to culture, and our culture is different, right? There's there isn't this this fierce desire for liberty in, in Canada as strong as the U.S., but there is some of that. Um, but look, look at our system. Look, look, look at the system we started with in 1867. And it's, it's, and especially, especially 1982, that's, that's, that's where it really got bad. Um, it it was never set up as well to be, to be as long lasting. Right. Um, so, you know, I think at least if you're talking about 1982, we are, we have arrived at the inevitable end point of what we set up in 1982. I don't know about 19 about 1867, but as soon as you have the charter, which is funny, it's ironic because it was it was built at the time to enhance freedom. And and you know, freedom hit our peak, what, the 50s, the 60s, Boucher and the King, right? That's when freedom in Canada hit its peak and it's been it's been a downward trend ever since. Well, maybe right? after the Bill of Rights. So because the yeah. average Yeah, okay, so the Bill of, yeah, the Bill of Rights is so you got yeah, 1960 1982. I mean, the, the, you know, Diefenbaker's famous quote about how I'm a Canadian and I'm free to do this. Yeah, so that's that's sort of the high watermark, and the, the charter was just the beginning of the end. And I and I said this, which before. is ironic, but you you make a good point. Yeah, yeah. it's ironic, but but so yes, if we're talking 1982 and, and and the charter and the framework we put in place then, yes, we have arrived at the natural inevitable conclusion. So uh, yes, I would say if we are going to get back to a better place, you know, back to the same place we were 60 years ago, or to a better place, we do have to abandon the 1982 framework. We have to abandon the charter. It has to be, it has to be ch- section one, section 33, the whole thing chucked out, right? You is, you, you, we talk, talked about this earlier when we got past it. I think it's naive to think, and, and again, look, I got respect for Peckford and all these guys. But I do honestly think it is naive to think that you can place a limitation on rights and not expect that to grow and not expect that to outgrow the rights itself. That's historically sure. naive. Yep. Okay. Yeah. If you're a student of history. You say in 1982, in 2023, we will be to a place where Section One has grown so large it's subsumed all the other rights. That's exactly where we are. No question. You know, yeah. The so, the other issue with the the other issue with the Charter, James, you make a great point. Is, you know, um, you know, the Charter in recent years hasn't done a very good job of protecting the enumerated rights that are in the Charter. But the judiciary has uh, been very busy creating these new positive rights um, for certain, uh, uh, you know, intersectional uh, groups that are very, very uh, place heavy demands on the public purse and uh, that expand the power of the state that treat uh, racial or, or gender groups differently and create new categories of discrimination beyond those which were originally envisioned. Uh, or established by you know by by parliament, so it's strange. On the one hand, the the court's not doing a very good job of actually protecting the rights that are set up in the charter, but they're spending a lot of time creating new rights uh, that that don't apply to many Canadians and that in fact effectively discriminated against many Canadians. 
Well, this so is the irony, right? Part of, yes, it is. It, the irony, the irony of the of the court experience during COVID, right? So you have no. you you made you made reference to this at the beginning, Layton. You know the the, no. the living tree approach to constitutional interpretation and enlarging rights when they thought it was appropriate and so on. So yeah, yeah. now a number of actions and applications were brought during COVID that were actually kind of ambitious given the wording of the charter. Now, on the other hand. You have a court system in the Supreme Court of Canada that over time has been expansive in their interpretation of rights in a living tree kind of way, right? But not during COVID, because after all, you know, the applicants or plaintiffs are on the wrong side of this. So suddenly the courts are textualists and say, yeah. oh, well, yeah, but it doesn't say that. So, you know, so go mm -hmm. away. So in mm -hmm. instead of following their own philosophical pattern of expanding rights to protect you know, the, the favored interests during COVID. Nope. Yeah. Shut that down and do the reverse. Yeah. We don't, we don't seem to have a lot in terms of solutions. We, we need somebody else on, on this panel who's smarter than us. Maybe Mr. <laughs> Crosby. People that haven't practiced us. law. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, well, I mean, it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that like, and, and and James, before the call is over, you have to tell us if you're still telling people to leave the country. Um, so hopefully <laughs> well, we can up the call and maybe maybe you, you'll have a cheerier thing to say. Um, but I mean, I, I think that when we get our institutions back, that literally there will be uh, the need to rethink the entire constitution and how we structure society and, you know, what kind of philosophical legal um, basis we want to kind of set things on, which is somewhat exciting. Like, I, I mean, I feel like um, there's an opportunity here to, to try something different. I don't know what that looks like, um, but I've never felt that way before. And, um, you know, and I think Bruce, you had made the point, like this system did work and there's, you know, different cultures and different periods of history where you have different systems. and. I don't know if it's just because of, you know, our technology now and all the information we have and actually, ironically, how um, in a way we're both more individualistic but less individualistic because of our social media and how dependent we've become on just kind of trying to, to show that we exist almost, hmm. right? So, like, the culture's changed so radically, but in a way it's quite quite exciting like you know people like us could find ourselves you know sitting around boardroom tables trying to figure out what the next system looks like yeah no. No. well i'll tell you one thing if it's me it's going to look like one where you have way less administrative state you you have you have way less government as a whole in total um and you have you have more of a marketplace, uh, and I mean both the marketplace of ideas and the economic marketplace. And I know I'm going to sound libertarian and American, but I'm like, look, uh, no system is perfect. This is the, we're on this side of hell, fallen world. You know, there, there's all kinds of sin and corruption and whatever. No system is perfect, but but you know, history can can illuminate which systems are better which systems have, have actually worked better, right? I mean, there's always the joke about how communism is supposed to work good on paper and every time it's implemented, it actually results in the murder of 
millions of human beings, right? Well, we can look at a system and say, okay, okay, so on paper, this marketplace of ideas and this free marketplace economically, you know, where where actually the market actually regulates professionals way more than the government does. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is yeah. not an is, is is not a perfect system on paper, but it's actually when it's implemented, it looks about as good in real life as we thought it was on paper, which is actually pretty decent. And actually, if we compare that to the rest of the history, it's probably about the best we got, right? And, well, and that's, yeah. that's the system I'm going to advocate for. It's it's one where okay, you can here okay, look here's the fundamental problem. The average Canadian believes that it is possible to reach utopia through government, more government power, more management is the word Bruce used. We can reach utopia. That's a fundamentally religious belief and a fundamentally wrong belief. You cannot. You cannot avoid some natural evil. So you either accept the natural evil, you either grow up and become enough of an adult mentally to accept that there is natural evil that you can never eliminate because you are not God and no government can ever be God. You either accept that with, 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 with the limited government that goes with that, and then the fact that there is some natural evil that just nobody does anything about, because you recognize that the attempt to play God and rectify that natural evil, which is impossible to do, will create more evil, okay? So, COVID's perfect example. Had we done nothing, people would have died, okay? That's awful, and it's mentally disturbing. But what happened is, and let's, let's, let's be real about this, more human beings lost their lives in the last three years because of the government management than would have lost their lives had everybody just been allowed and permitted to go about their business and do what they saw best as far as helping themselves and helping their family and helping their communities and doing what they thought was going to be good to help everybody. Had that happened, less human beings would have lost their lives. And their livelihoods, obviously, that's, and that's, that's pretty darn important. That's pretty close to lives, actually. That's going back to the suicide issue, right? So that's, that's actually the system. The system is less government, more individual responsibility, and an acknowledgement that you cannot defeat natural evil, and your attempts to play God through big government to do it will result in more evil. There's a trap, though, there, James. I mean, I, most, I mostly agree with you, but there's a trap there. And I think the trap is this. So if the case against lockdowns and so on is that those measures killed more people than if the government had just left things alone, the implication of that argument is lockdowns would have been okay if they had worked better. In other words, you're allowed to infringe our civil liberties as long as it's effective at producing the goal that you want. And for my money... I agree with I agree with your your assessment of the of the results of the, of the data, but I don't care what the data says. If the lockdowns had worked and saved more people than otherwise, I don't care. You should not be allowed to lock me down. This is a free country. I don't think that that should be permitted. Yeah. And so I, there's a trap there in talking about the efficacy of the measures and how they failed as opposed to saying efficacy is irrelevant. You cannot do this to people who are free. We're still always going to be talking cost benefit, but where, where I think you're even, you can even be stronger, Bruce, is, I mean, I think over time, and, and James, I wasn't interpreting what you were saying is necessarily, you know, worrying so much about the cost benefit, but let's say, Bruce, that, that actually we would have had better health outcomes 
um, this time, if we had been strict, then not be strict. Like, let's just say we, you know, that that somehow, despite, so we have a very different fact pattern. Yeah. Um, there's there's a tremendous cost to society, um, which is almost hard to measure in not privileging individual rights. And like, so we're locked down. Mm-hmm. There's a cost to that. Like, so for, and you know, like the identity papers, like one thing that haunts me is, you know, aside from the fact that it truly is a police state ritual, I mean, you were free before to go to a restaurant. You, Your only consideration would be, do I want to go or do I want to cook at home? Like you were truly were free. It was just, what do I want to do? Mm-hmm. Where all of a sudden you, you are now having to show your identity papers mm-hmm. to be granted the permission from the state. Like, I mean, I was horrified because that's why police states have you show identity papers that reinforces subconsciously every time you mm-hmm. do the ritual that yep. you are a slave and the state is granting you a privilege. But our children watched this. Yeah. And, that has, and they watched us being afraid of the state. And, and I'm just citing one example of like that has that's going to have an effect going forward where a whole generation has watched their parents be afraid of the state. And a whole generation has watched their parents support intrusive government measures and these are going to have long-term consequences that will end in tyranny if we don't turn it around so even if there would be worse health outcomes and and we 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 have a mess to clean up like there's consequences to allowing freedoms to become worthless like and and it's just i I don't disagree i agree i agree with the example i agree with the criticism but 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 it's still a consequentialist argument. It yeah, still says right. the measures are wrong because of the results that they produce. And yeah. that's not the argument I'm making. I'm saying they are wrong because they violate your liberty. And right. Bruce, so it's really, it's yeah. really just yeah. a, almost a moral. Do, Bruce, and Bruce has to be right. They could, have, they could have done them in a way that would have made the consequences in the way that you're saying, you know, less acute. They still would have been wrong. Yes. There's, there's, accept, a, there's an actual, there's an actual proof. There's an actual yeah. proof that Bruce is right, and we've seen that this happen recently. Jacinda Ardern, the you know the Prime Minister of New Zealand. This was the, the most locked down country in the world. They went almost two years with zero COVID deaths. Okay, but they were the most locked down country in the world. She just received an international award for her handling of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Recently. Uh, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney came out and he talked about the great leadership that Justin Trudeau and all of the provincial premiers showed during COVID. So this is reminiscent of, you know, Winston Churchill's famous line where he was asked about, you know, how history was going to treat him. He said, well, he wasn't worried about that because he was going to be writing the history, right? And this is this is the danger what Bruce is saying. We must say no there can never be a, a justifiable lockdown mm-hmm. because even if the results are horrifically bad empirically, and we know they are, the the the, the, the people in power are going to say, "Oh no, we this was good. We saved lives with lockdowns," um, and and that will always be their position. That has to be their position, right? Well, and Theresa you know, Tamas claimed that, that she saved a million lives. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, which just is an outrageous figure, and and. Anyone who doesn't believe that it's an outrageous figure. Right. Well, she but she might have saved that many. They weren't Canadians. They weren't Canadians. Right. <laughs> she saved a million lives. 
but it, but it but it makes but it makes our liberties dependent upon evidence mm -hmm. right yeah yes. right yes yeah. so, no you're making a good point uh, yes. so I, want, I want to respond to bruce because because i i agree with him what what i'm saying is that fundamentally the cost to the loss of individual liberty is is always higher no matter how effective the measures are so i'm saying regardless of how effective the measures are maybe they are effective so this isn't contingent about about them being ineffective in the context of COVID. I think this is just an example of how they will always be more costly. Now, again, this goes back to the belief that individual freedom is actually a good, like a, like a capital G good. For of course. Men, right? Right. Like I, like I fundamentally, yeah. philosophically, I believe that the greatest thing for human flourishing, and I use those terms on purpose, is maximum individual freedom and liberty. And that that you pay a, a higher cost to to the to humanity mentally spiritually economically emotionally relationally you pay a higher cost at losing that freedom even if you gain whether you gain a little bit of safety or even a lot of safety whatever you gain if you if you hurt that individual freedom then then you've in the end you've done a disservice to humanity on a whole and a disservice to each individual human in, in individually so i so bruce i i agree with you the, the, the wrong is that look, this th this is always wrong. It'll always be more wrong, no matter how effective the measures are. So I'm coming at it from the same angle as you. I was just using COVID right. as, as an example. I guess you know what's better actually would, would be to use an example that actually had more efficacy. You'd still have to say, look, it doesn't matter how effective it might be. There's, they're usually going to be poorly effective, but even if they're kind of effective, it doesn't matter. In 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 the end, it's always worse for people individually and people as a group to have more government tyranny and less individual responsibility and individual freedom. It's a spiritually, emotionally, economic, every, every aspect of really? humanity. Of course, that's part of the problem is, is you know, we, 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 we tend to in the West in our you know, post-Christian culture, forget the emotional, spiritual, mental, relational, even economic part of, of, of humanity, right? And that's why we got so many suicides and they all cause mortality. Right. Is because we, 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 we forgot about that. We forgot about our history and what we've learned the last thousand years in, in the Western world. So, Bruce, I agree with you. I do, too. <laughs> I think that, um, yeah, we can even use the example of, of the coerced mandates. Right. Oh, yeah. Because we, yeah. we can we can say, well, technically no government made it legal where you're going to get fined or imprisoned. But all levels of government did everything they could short of that to coerce us. And so it, it was forced vaccination. And there's only one group of people in history that did not have the right to choose or, or reject a medical treatment, and that's slaves. That's the only group of... And, and so we basically entered a scenario where we're slaves and we've created this precedent and and ironically a large part of the canadian population still thinks this was okay and the mm -hmm. difficulty i have and the question i have for those people who thought no this was okay to coerce people into taking this treatment because you supported this treatment you thought it was a good idea and you thought it would protect you and your family but now we have a precedent so what about the next time when it's a treatment that you think is going to hurt you or is going to hurt your family, you've now set the precedent and, and here's the danger, like let alone, you know, any physical consequences, just, you know, ethically and morally and spiritually, you realize you've lost control over your body. You are, you're a slave as far as these treatments go. 
and that that is too much of a cost for hmm. us to bear. This is, but for me, this is a very good example of how our laws don't work now for the situations that we're in, uh, right? So, so the 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 vaccine mandates slipped through the cracks mm. of the law that we have, right? Because if if you if you go if you go you know to to a court and say, well, my my employer is requiring me to get a vaccine and therefore are being coerced, the court's going to say, well. No, you're not. You're not getting coerced any more than the than the policy that you have a uh, have a short haircut. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have the short haircut or the vaccine. Just put your job. It's not coercion in the formal legal sense, and they're right. And yet, the way you've characterized it, Sean, I think is also right, which is that the sum total of the manipulation by this administrative state apparatus meant that there was no place else to go and no mm-hmm. place, no nothing else to do. Except be cornered by, by by the totality of the, the effects of the of the of the management and the mandates put together, mm-hmm. and, and so we had this we had this really big legal problem, which is what they did was not probably in fact in most cases technically either a a violation of a charter right and b legally coercive, and yet we can all see that it left us with very little choice. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's a matter of how, how do we square those two things? And in what yeah. way can we say that the, that, 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 that the rights that even that we, that, that we, we think we have, the rights that are written down, don't actually cover this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and it's, a, it's a problem. Yeah. You use the, the term Sean, uh, Sean uh, slavery. I, I think it's very apt. And I can tell you, from representing a lot of the workers who were put out of work because they they stood up and said no i'm not going to put this in my body um even after those employers came back and removed the mandates and invited them back to work the vast majority of the people i represented in these cases could not and i say could not not did not could not go back to work because they were traumatized they felt dehumanized that the relationship that they had with their employer or they thought they had with their employer was completely destroyed at a psychological and emotional level. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a serious problem too. When we talk about, you know, why the law didn't protect people, you know, we talk about the lockdowns that we, we need to also take into account the people that you're talking about, that Bruce is talking about, and that's the Canadian working class because uh, the, 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 the vaccine mandates fundamentally change life for the Canadian working class. And, uh, you know, that is a huge, huge problem in our country, you know, leaving aside the fact that, you know, the lockdowns produced the greatest shift in economic wealth in, in, in known history. Mm-hmm. I, I experienced the same thing. I don't, I don't think this is anecdotal. I, I experienced the same sort of, of, of people were, I, 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 people say literally that phrase, I can't go back to work for those people. I can't. Yeah. I just can't bring myself to do. It wasn't like a, oh, I don't really want to. It was I can't. I can't bring myself to do that. And I, I had clients, um, you know, you know, the vaccinated ones. They they did say going back to your slavery comment. They did say, it 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 felt like I no longer owned my body. Mm. It, it felt like now somebody else had ownership over my body. And and I've had Christian clients who that's part of their religious reason for not taking it is look, my body is owned by Christ, myself, and my spouse. Nobody else. Not my employer, not not the government, not anybody. 
Well, right, but that's a, but hold on. I, mean, I totally agree with you, James. Obviously, I completely agree with you. But 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 the legal problem that I've always been starting with on in this area is so. You start with something banal, right? So you go you go to apply for a job, and they tell you, you know, well, we have a policy here that you have to be clean shaven. And you say, well, but I like to have a beard. It's my body. You can't tell me what to do. And they say, well, that's true. So don't take the job. I mean, we, we wouldn't call that coercion. It's just negotiation. And yet when we, we, we slip into characterizing the vaccine thing as a violation of bodily integrity. And I agree that because of the way it was done and the manipulation of the whole scene by the administrative state and so on, it turns out to amount to that. But it's not quite the same thing as simply a, a well, it, it legally, I'm afraid, it is close to the same thing as having a workplace policy that the employer says, this is what the way we do things here, and you're free to do it or you're free to leave. Yeah. And the ironic thing about that, using Bruce's workplace uh, idea, is that if an individual identifies as a transgender, uh, you know, Brian can dress up and call himself Brianna. And right. that is a that is a right that the law has chosen to protect. Exactly so. Exactly so. And now we're getting into the the incoherence of our laws right now because they prohibit some things and not other things. And those things have been chosen with a particular lens. And the things that 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 we value, the things that you're talking about, James, are now not protected essentially right and lots, of other, lots of other things totally are so, so is, it, is, is it possible if we have the proper principles and ideas grounding us when we have to use our discretion is it is it possible to draw a coherent line you know because yeah. I, I hear what you're saying I, I maybe i'm being too idealistic but i tend to say if we have the right principles and ideals we can draw the line we can say it's, it's oh, simple yeah. it's, it's simple that's, james that's a mere choice but but there is a line at which it's no longer a mere choice, right? Well, let's try this. Try this. Can I, can I chime in before you, before you get ahead. back? So because yeah. before I lose my thought, because Bruce, you're yeah. saying, you know, there's some political decisions being made here. And yeah. so, you know, legally, this might not be discrimination. And yet I, I'm listening to Leighton and I'm listening to James say that actually their clients at a core level. Yeah. Under, at a core level. Yeah. They so understood this was coercion. Yes. Just so the, at, at a core level, so much so. Absolutely. They, yeah. they could not, they could not go back because, uh, you know, spiritually they were damaged by what happened. And I think, you know, we, the Western liberal democracies were all based upon, you know, the Christian principles. And, and it's so simple, that second commandment, you know, yes. love your neighbor like yourself. So basically treat others the way you want to be treated. That's actually the simple touchstone for, you know, a, first of all, basing a civil society, because if we are, if we train ourselves and our culture is, no, we actually love each other. Um, you know, then we're not murdering each other. We're not stealing. We're not sleeping with each other's wife because we don't want our neighbor doing those things to us. Um, but it's also a way of judging law. So if you you can judge any law and say, well, does this comply with the second commandment? Is this treating my neighbor in you know putting these rights and restrictions as a law that that I would want on myself? And and everything becomes very simple. Like it it fits every challenge. 
So um, I think the the real the real answer going forward is for us to just get back to that that basis because no society is perfect. And James, you were talking about this. Like we're just going to have problems, and and part of the problem is we want to step in and solve them. But actually, you end up with maximum maximum individual liberty if your society is based on the second commandment. Uh, that's okay. the best answer so far. Okay, but well, maybe, maybe, but no, no, you you toy with that one for a while, Bruce. It, it's surprising <laughs> how how well it works. Yeah, but you can't, but you can't ensure that everybody carries that with them. Oh and no, so no, I understand that, right? and that's why you still have laws. But I mean, we have. Right, we have laws against not murdering, and so somebody that murders, we'll we'll deal with them. But the way we deal with them will also be according to the second commandment, like every action we do. So we have well, to but, take but, action. Okay, well, let's, let's test that though. Let's just test it in the area of freedom of speech, right? So if 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 you have a mind that you know you you don't want to go around uh, disrespecting people in your speech, you don't want to insult them, you don't want to embarrass them, you don't want to make fun of them, but we still want to be able to do that in our laws, right? Yeah, but I mean, the the, the simple thing though is, is I'm, I'd actually say it does apply. And, and you're making the assumption, I don't want to do those things. <laughs> I'm giving you the benefit of that. But, but, you know, more so none of us want to be told that we can't speak and we can't share our opinion. And, well, right. and, that, but, but, and then, therefore, we're not going to restrict it. Like, yes, we don't like people voicing some opinions, but my gosh, we don't want to be told that we personally can't say what we want to say, you know, unless we're really crossing some hard line that that's way down there. So I actually think it does work because, you know, you don't want somebody running you down, but you more so don't want to be told you can't run somebody down if that's the mood you're in. Okay, I'm not. I'm not sure about the last example, but let's let's go. Let's go to discrimination, right? So we have this. We have human rights codes that outlaw discrimination on certain grounds, but only certain grounds. And any grounds that are not listed, in theory, in interpretation, means that you can go ahead, right? And and so my preference about all those laws, which apply not just to government but to private people, that private people should not be subject to any of those laws. And they should be able to discriminate in any way they want, any way they want, because assuming you have an actually free marketplace, you have to compete with all the other people who are deciding, you know, how they want to discriminate. And if somebody is foolish enough to discriminate on some stupid ground like race, well, there are an awful lot of other much smarter people who won't do that, who will be a much better employer, a much better retailer. And, you, and all the customers will go there and not to the first place. Well, I, I think right. you end up with smaller government when you follow the second commandment, you know, yes. regardless. Like you just, you do, you end up, be, be, you know, because of the caution, because the one thing that, that we all are, the last thing we'd want to lose is our freedom. So, you know, if you, when you're, when you're in second commandment territory, you really are only accepting limits. Yeah, but, well, but hold on, though, because, because, because now we're talking about whose freedom we're talking about. Right, so let's go back. Let's go back to the vaccine mandates. So, if you're an employer, and you know, and forget the manipulation by the public health authorities and so on, just for now, let's assume the thing uh, comes up and you decide on your own. You know, a vaccine comes along, you decide on your own without without manipulation that you want to have everybody in your workplace vaccinated. Okay, well, you're a free person too. You have premises. You have a business. Are you not allowed to say to your employers, uh, sorry, employees, 
everybody must be vaccinated. And if you don't want to, okay, but that means you can't work here. Because okay, so you know, we're, allow, not, we're, we're, allow we're them. not talking about a legal structure, though, because this. No, I am talking about a legal structure. I'm talking about a, I'm talking about a legal structure in which employers have the freedom to decide their own workplace policies. Mm-hmm. And I'm not defending vaccine mandates. I think they're horrible things, and 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 essentially coercive by the managerial state because of the way they went about this. But if we're talking, if we're trying to imagine a different legal regime in which people are free then employers are free to make their workplace policies. And if they want to, they can put in a vaccine mandate because there's a free market out there of employers who will be smart enough not to do that. And all the good employees who don't want to take a vaccine will go there instead. That's the way you fix it. Instead of raising all these rules about what people can and cannot do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You, you, you went a different direction because I, you know, I, I was just saying we base our laws I'm really the best touchstone for basing whether a law really is a valid law and serves the populace is you apply it to the second commandment. Right. You're now you can a society, depending on where they're at, can end up in different places there, but it, it's a good fundamental place. But what you're talking about is is whether or not there should really be any laws on employers or not, and let the marketplace kind of decide that, which is something that that James has talked about too. And I and what's attractive about that although you can end up you know in a a specific situation that you're unhappy with um but what's attractive about that is is the problem with the government deciding is then they're privileging one one group over another like exactly i mean i used to work at the bc human rights council when it was called that right um under much different legislation like we're you know we're talking in the the mid 90s here um But the problem with a, a human rights type approach is, is yes, it might serve one subset of the population, but then it takes away from another and, and they are political choices. Like the difficulty is, is, is society has been trained to demand that government offers solutions, like basically exercise right. power. Yes. And they don't understand how dangerous that is. Right. Um, that really, we should be terrified whenever somebody is gonna exercise power because mm-hmm. you cannot predict what the consequences are and the exercise of power itself speaks something like we'd all agree there's certain i mean we have to protect against you know crime and stuff like that like but even the exercise in power itself is interesting yeah but yet people demand to lose freedoms yeah there, there's a great there's a great book uh, written by a man named albert knock it was i think it was i think it was written in the 1930s it's called our enemy at state probably guess what the book is about from the title but but part of the thesis of the book is what you were saying sean and that is that people actually do a much better job of solving problems when they get together and and they develop their own coherent systems um and and to do that at a local level uh that, that they do a much better job of solving problems and do it much more efficiently uh than governments do uh, but again, it's a it's a change uh, in philosophy, and your your second commandment idea I think sort of ties into that because the other thing that Knox said is that um, when you permit, once you have a situation where people are looking to government to do all the things for them, uh, what will happen is you will you will automatically or you know by osmosis or by whatever process you want to name it, uh, you'll have people who you will have elites develop because they they will themselves into power 
they 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 will they will draw themselves into positions where um, if people look to government, they'll 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 sort of find themselves in those positions of power, draw that power to them, and then in the end we have elites running everything, which is sort of what we have with our institutions in the West right now. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you don't you don't really have a anything like an actual market for those institutions and you know in the market for labor they they control it you know it, it's it's a farce yeah so the 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 ideal situation that i'm trying to describe doesn't exist i mean you wouldn't yeah. be able to do that today it just doesn't could. exist right it could it should, it could. It should yeah. exist it just, it doesn't right yeah. yeah it would work better than what we have now that's for well, sure we, we could end up we could end up in a nation that's much devolved in power um than it is like i think part of the problem is the concentration of power yes absolutely Absolutely. well actually i'd say that is the single biggest problem is the concentration of power uh among certain government elites or institutions absolutely the more the more diffuse power because there's always power in society there has to be some the more diffuse it is the more separated it is the more free and the healthier and the happier and the better people will be in- right, and so that's that's exactly what you had before COVID was the concentration of power, and it it just dramatically accelerated during COVID. So now you know you have three years of tyranny, and you're going to have overall, you know, for the next 10, 20, 30 years until the trend is reversed, you're you're going to have the most tyrannical that painting society has ever been in its in its history over the next few years now because of because of what's happened in COVID, which was an acceleration of what was already happening, which was the concentration of power until yep. you decentralize the power. Yeah, you, and, and, and that's just it, to go, to go back to Bruce's example, right? If we actually had that decentralized system, right, you would have had uh, quite a few probably just, you know, Canadian culture. You would have had quite a few employers that would have would have done this, but what would have happened in the marketplace? Well, not only would some, some would have taken it and been injured and then sued and would have won because you would have had a functioning court system with judges that actually, you know, like actually follow the evidence because you didn't have all this other coercion and tyranny. And it- and it wouldn't take it. It wouldn't take you seven years to get to a result. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have people who were fired <laughs> yeah. with cause who would sue, and then they would win, right? Because employment law, which is like four hundred years old, and in, in, in the British common law system would have said, no, if you're gonna, you can terminate somebody for whatever reason you want, but you got to pay them severance, right? And the whole thing would have been dealt with, right? Yep. I mean, yes, people still would have been harmed, and that would have been bad. People would have had to change jobs. There would have been all kinds of disruption. It would have been bad. This is going back to my natural evil argument. It would have. There would have been bad. It would have been less yep. bad than this. And the yes. market would have would have would have rectified a lot of it, right? People who were injured would have been compensated, and people who were fired with cause would have got their severance, and then we would have gone on. And then notice this: that mistake would not have likely been repeated much. This mistake will be repeated again. This whole like vaccine mandate, it will be repeated again, mm-hmm. right? It'll, it'll be something else. It'll, it'll be a different vaccine or a different. It's in. It's in, apparently it's in the liberals' campaign for the next election, twenty twenty five. Yeah, it's it'll in keep platform. happening because we don't have the marketplace to correct it. Like right. Versus example. So I, I I agree. We shouldn't actually have all these labor codes and all these these human rights codes. We shouldn't have any of it. Right. It, fundamentally, that represents a belief that government is better than the market, and it's it's actually not. The market is better and will correct yeah. the the errors and the evils at a way higher rate. Not a perfect rate, but a higher rate. Can we can we even take this higher on on the constitutional level? I mean, I I'm of the belief that in a it started with Trudeau Sr. in the in the early 70s, that basically he undermined our confederation and 
basically we're now in a unitary state where the federal government dictates policy to the provinces by way of transfer payments. So yes. because the provinces have all this jurisdiction and health and things like that. And, and if you had a marketplace of provinces, they would all be doing different things. And then we could see what works and doesn't works. But the federal government basically dictates policy because they just tax so much and then says, well, we'll give you all this money for health, but you have to, you have to follow these rules and we'll give you, you, money for this and you have yeah. to follow these yeah. rules. So, and the provinces have allowed it. So the yeah, problem because they've been, they've been bribed. They've been bribed. Well, exactly, because politically, wait, the federal government's raising this money. I'm, you know, they're they're plucking the goose, not me. And yeah. and so, but it was a huge mistake. I mean, I'm certain that the province of Alberta deeply regrets this now, and and mm -hmm. the province of Saskatchewan deeply regrets this now, and I bet the province of Quebec deeply regrets this now because they understand that we're now functionally in a unitary state and no longer in a confederation. Well, they can always they can always change their mind, though. They can always change their mind even today. Yes. If Alberta today said, "You know what? I don't want. We don't want any more healthcare payments. We're going to set up our own healthcare system with a different premise." They're mm -hmm. they're constitutionally allowed to do that. Well, but, well do but, but the problem, Bruce, is 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 the federal government still will be taxing all that money from Alberta, and just now some of it won't trickle back. Like I mean, well, that, so that's a hard that's, that's a hard true. place that's, to be in as a provincial government is. Yeah, we're going to lay off, you know, half of our healthcare workers because we're not going to be able to make up that budget because that money that came from Alberta is not going to come back to Alberta, even though, you know, most of it doesn't come back anyway. Yeah, and that's that's the bad that's the part of the bad deal that I that that mm -hmm. should be but, changed. But the thing is, 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 you know, the is it should have never been allowed in the first place and, and no. courts have sanctioned it. So, I mean. But it, it's funny, the unintended consequences, like, you know, <clears throat> yeah. but this was not what, this was not how Canada was supposed to function. Well, when the, administrative, the administrative state is not provided for in our constitution. Mm -hmm. 1857, no. 1982, they don't say, we're gonna have an administrative state that does all these things. That's, that's not part of the, of, the, of, the, of the formula. But by the same token, it doesn't actually prohibit it either. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and I I think that would be the next step to 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 refashion it so that the the you know, number one the legislatures are prohibited from delegating the rulemaking authority to executive branch bodies to pass substantive rules. That'd be a good place to start. Yeah, mm -hmm. that is right? hugely hugely important. Yeah, and 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 and. Maybe add to that list, Sean, the point that you're making that the federal government should not be able to interfere in provincial areas of jurisdiction by using the the, the federal public purse. That would be another good. And, mm -hmm. and administrative bodies can't issue penalties. You, exactly. Right. Not, yeah. That a court right. does not adjudicate on. Right. Right. Yep. One right. one really great example of what Bruce is talking about is Alberta Health Services. Alberta Health Services has half the provincial budget, and they're run by a cabal of ten people. Who have been in place since Rachel Notley was premier, and and uh, and they control everything that happens. They're they're the most powerful uh, people, arguably, in the province in terms of uh, their ability to wield administrative legal power. And uh, we saw how I mean the the lockdowns was essentially the weaponization of Alberta Health Services, uh, where where they turned Alberta Health Services people into 
into uh, in, let's call them investigators. And uh, you know, I, I mean, James will remember the trial that we did with Pastor James Coates when we cross-examined this this the young lady uh, whose uh, whose entire sum training as an Alberta Health Services investigator was a Zoom call that isn't as long as the one that we've been on. And she was responsible for shutting down, for, for putting James Coates in prison and for shutting down that church and having it triple barricaded for months and turned into a police barracks. That person was vested with that authority. So when Bruce talks about the, the power of this administrative state, he's so right. This is a huge, huge problem in our country. Well, you know, I'll, I'll suggest something because we've just been all talking about it. Yeah, and then like we'll we'll wrap up soon just because we've been over two hours. So if you're thinking of close clothing or closing thoughts, so um, well, I, I I'm going to say something that I think is really offensive to, to to even some Canadians who might agree with me on a lot of other things. It it was a mistake of epic proportions, fifty years ago, to go with the the level of public health care that we've gone with, the socialization of medicine, the giving the control of healthcare to the government. Well, I mean, so for, I'll give you one example, the natural health products, right? Yep. Would we have that now if we had not embraced Tommy Douglas's idea as uncritically as we did? I mean, that was emotionally attractive. I mean, look, I don't want people dying on the side of the street without basic healthcare. Sure, I don't, right? But was, was giving government that power a better solution in the long run? No, it wasn't. No, right? it wasn't. You know how many nurses I have as clients who tell me they can't stay in the profession because they think it's it's not healthcare anymore. They call it disease care or death care. Mm -hmm. Even I had a nurse last night tell me that as a client, right? They're in it. They're seeing it, right? That's inevitable. You let government take something over, whether it's fifty years or five years or a hundred years, they will they will eventually. And and that's the marketplace not competing, right? Exactly. Yes. You so, know, so, 1918 yeah. flu pandemic, if you went to an allopathic hospital and our system's allopathic, you had an 80% chance of dying. If you went to a homeopathic hospital, you had an 80% chance of living. Incredible. So, and that was the marketplace. And now we're railroaded into this allopathic system where um, we're funneled into only chemical, like it's in Canada, it's functionally illegal to treat you know, a, a moderate or, you know, a medium to serious health condition with anything that did not have a patent when it went through the drug approval process, because we've structured our laws that only, only patented drugs can't afford to get through. And that's a deliberate policy choice to favor this chemical drug model, which that's not how you get the best health outcomes by saying we're only having one model for treating anything serious. Um, so James, I think you've hit upon something really important. Oh, a hundred percent agree. No question. It's a good test. It's a good test for those Canadians who want to live in a free country. You ask them whether or not they're willing to ditch single payer healthcare. Just get rid of it. If they say no, they don't mean what they say. <laughs> wow. There you go. There's your litmus test. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm willing to let it go. I'll give it up, man. Give me, give me whatever to your death. Seriously. I I'll give it up. <laughs> I'll, I'll be the first one to say well yeah i mean it that that's an interesting that's an interesting test i mean i think the difficulty that people have understanding is is that when you go when you say because you know 
James, you had used the example, like, you know, you don't want somebody dying on the side of the road without healthcare. So, and, and that's how we always get there is, is these bad scenarios, but we don't understand, well then, but then when we're going to privilege one system over all others and allow then basically government to then dictate which, which models and which treatments we're following that has um, such broad implications that we can't predict going down the road that, that it, it's, you see, and that's then the exercise of power again. And Bruce, we're, who's getting privileged and, and who yeah. isn't? When they respond with that, try this. Say, well, we don't want people starving on the side of the road either. But does that mean that you're going to put food production and sale in the hands exclusively of the government? There's mm -hmm. only going to be government-run food stores, really? Are you sure? Because we're all, we'll all starve. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, we will. Based upon the way they run, the, the things that <laughs> well, they are. I think we've lost James's internet connection, and we probably should be wrapping up anyway. Do uh, Bruce or Leighton, you guys have any final final thoughts on this before we sign off? No, I've, I just want to say I think it's great to have these kinds of conversations. They're so important, and God willing, we'll be able to continue to have them because I think that they are so important to finding solutions. I mean, the more we talk about these things and and get people together sharing ideas that, you know, at least we've got a chance of perhaps uh, coming up with some good ideas that will, that will solve these problems. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. I really enjoyed it, Sean. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, I think I, it's, really, just, it's funny when, yeah. uh, when Teresa was setting this up and she says, Oh, you're going to be on a round table. And it's like, okay, because <laughs> you just know it's going to be an engaging conversation. So thank you. Um, thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Leighton. James, you're not on anymore, but thank you so much. And then Thank thanks you. to everyone who attended. Um, it's it's just kind of exciting to get people. Oh, James, you're back. We're just signing off. I already thanked you for attending. And, um, yeah, you haven't talked to my battery on my you. laptop, so that's how we know we've been on here a long time. Yeah. So and now you have to give up. Now you have to give the last word, Sean. Oh yes. Yeah, so James, you get the last word, and then I'll say goodbye again. Well, Not to put you on the spot or anything. <laughs> he well, doesn't. I, mean, I, I, I just think. Um, having this talk does give me a little bit of hope that we, we can actually turn this around. If we can have more of these talks and brainstorm about all the things that went wrong and all the ways we can fix it, I'm telling you right now, that's, that's, that's how we get out of this. So Sean, I thank you for what you've done with the NCI. And I, and I hope yes. this, I hope this culture of talking about what went wrong and how awful it was. And then, and then following up with talking, how we might fix it. I hope that continues. Because mm -hmm. I tell you, that's the path to how we get out of this, and, and that's all. Well, it, it's 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 going to be another six or eight months before we're all invited to the you know constitutional conference to draft the next the next thing. But I look forward to it, working with uh, the three of you on that project, and I'm sure uh, that Canadians can rest assured that we will do a fine job of uh, setting up the next system. So on that happy note, <laughs> I will uh, just say goodnight to everyone joining us at the NCI. We really appreciate uh, you participating and um, we, we really are trying to find some positive ways to move forward. So thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there. So please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility.
from the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.